The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Burial the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Jeremy Dobbin here with the young boy Josh Smith and Floyd Johnson Jr. from All Things Elite. On today's show, we'll review Forbidden Door and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or Keeping It Strong Style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for njpwworld.com. We have features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit njpwext.us today for details. And we have a thunderstorm going on here in Tampa, Florida. We actually have already recorded like 20 minutes of the podcast, but power went out and we lost the audio, so... You're going to miss all the, the funny banter that we had at the uh, beginning of the show. <laughs> yeah, I'm not happy about it. I felt like I was on a roll, you know. I was, I was putting in some really good content for you guys, and it's just gone. It's gone into the void. It went through the forbidden door, and it, it, it's, go- <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we, we were on a five-star podcast. We had a show going, and, you know. Just, yeah. It was too good. It yeah. was too good to be heard. A lot, a lot of good stuff, a lot of good banter, but you know, we're going to make up for some lost time here. And so essentially what we what you missed on the lost audio, we talked about the few stuff that happened on Dynamite, the, the Bryanson promo, the chaos for United Empire, and the Moxley Tanahashi against Jericho and Archer. And we talked about Cobb and Wheeler on Rampage, talked about Ishii being injured, Hiromu uh, missing a fever. Um, and then we were talking about uh, Wiz Factor's question, uh, when he asked general thoughts on the wins and losses of Forbidden Door, do you think the talent from both companies were appropriately protected by the booking? Is it really a problem that most of the pins were on NJPW talent? Yeah, I guess I'll just re-answer this because I feel like that's a, a, a good way to kick us off and uh, um, a, a pretty good question too. So, you know, I didn't really get that vibe that um, New Japan sort of got, you know, owned by AEW or anything like that. Um, when the show first started and we were watching it, uh, we, we went to a movie theater and actually saw it as a group and we were trying to keep track initially and we're like, Oh, new Japan's up, you know, one Oh, two Oh, yada, yada. But as time went on, 
we noticed that the layout of the card made it almost impossible to really keep track of New Japan versus AEW victories because there's a lot of matches where it's like multi-man tags and you've got members of both rosters teaming together or, you know, um, other situations like uh, Lance Archer versus Nick Komarodo. It's like, yeah, I guess you can make an argument that Archer, Suzuki Goon, and for that evening he's representing New Japan, but realistically they're both AEW guys. Um, so it, it didn't really carry that same feeling that you got from, like, say, New Japan WCW in 1995 or, like, the recent Noah versus New Japan show. It, it didn't have that same feeling. The other thing, too, is, like, a lot of the guys that did take pinfalls from the New Japan side, a lot of them were young guys. You know what I mean? Um, freaking uh, Clark Connors and, you know, Shota Umino, stuff like that. Plus, I feel like they sort of bounced it out on the other side where you did have, like, Orange Cassidy lose and you did have Adam Cole lose. and You know, it didn't feel completely unbalanced. The other thing, too, is because the show was so good and there were so many star-making performances. Like, there were literally... Uh, those two aforementioned guys, Shoto Mino and Clark Connors, even though they were the ones who, who took pinfalls and lost, they got over so well in those matches and in those moments and on that stage that it almost came across as like getting over and defeat. So it didn't feel like it harmed them in any way. I mean, even look at Tanahashi. He lost in the main event and he literally had an AW audience booing John Moxley in his home promotion, which never happens. So all in all, I mean, I don't know. It felt like just such a great show that it didn't feel like uh, New Japan really got Noah or anything like that. You know what I mean? The show felt like a collaboration more than it felt like a contest, and it made a big event for everybody. And I just love that about it. Yeah, definitely like Josh was saying, we're in the movie theater. Initially, during the, the pre-show, we're trying to count you know, who's winning matches and uh, but you just kind of lost count because the show was so good. There were so many uh, great match after great match, and you just got really got into it. And so by the, the end of the show, you, you weren't worried about you know brand supremacy. There weren't guys coming out with Lion Mark shirts or AW shirts, and there wasn't no like scoreboards keeping tally and who is you know the quote unquote best company or best brand. It was all about putting on a great uh, pro wrestling show. Yeah, there was one thing that I'd mentioned, Jeremy, just before the feed cut out. You know, um, a lot of people called the show cursed before it started, you know, because there's so many people that were out and injured and the build was lackluster, yada, yada, yada. I, now, I say this facetiously, but there's a part of me that feels like maybe what we've called a curse was actually a blessing from the wrestling gods. I feel like the wrestling gods might have looked down and said, you know what? They don't need all of these guys and all this build to have one of the best shows of the past, you know, five or six, seven years or whatever. Let's hold these people back. <laughs> Give them exactly what they need for now. <laughs> and then we can give them the rest of those guys later on when they do it again. And I feel like, you know, everyone was so disappointed. Well, how about it now? This show was fucking awesome and you know the wrestling gods knew what they were doing on this evening <laughs> uh and floyd you were live in the building for the show how was the atmosphere there oh the building was amazing so much energy everybody was excited to be there um uh, eight, uh all things we had some extra tickets we were able to get them to a fan 
they weren't going to make it to the show. They were able to get there. It was just great. Just everybody's talking to everybody. Just so much excitement. Just uh, buzz felt like all in to me. Nice. That's what it. That's what it seemed like uh, watching it. We now, me and Jeremy, we actually again, like I said, we went to a movie theater. We've never watched wrestling in a theater uh, capacity or like that sort of atmosphere. So that in and of itself was very unique and very fun, and something I think I'm probably going to do again in the future. But watching it live, I was like, man, this crowd. I mean, Chicago is like notoriously a great crowd, obviously, but this felt like way bigger on the screen than probably any Chicago pay-per-view they've ever done before. That includes when Punk first returned. That includes, like, his uh, initial pay-per-view match with Darby. This, like, all in all was a much... This is probably, to me, the best AW crowd they've had and probably one of the best crowds going back to All In. Yeah, the crowd was hype all night in that movie theater experience, you know, the, the only one thing, like, we didn't hear the commentary that well. For, for some reason, the audio was set up where when we were hearing the, the action well, we were hearing the crowd well, but for whatever reason, the commentary was kind of low, but it kind of made, made us feel like we were there live and kind of immersed in the experience at that huge screen. And yeah, everybody that's there is, you know, chanting and clapping and getting into the show. So it was a, a great experience. If you guys have never watched an AW pay-per-view at a movie theater, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, and it was like $13. I thought it was going to be a lot more like most boxing events. It, yeah, we, we did it through AMC. If you guys get a chance, I highly recommend it. It's pretty awesome. Nice. Well, uh, let's talk about this show. Uh, we can kind of lump all the, the pre-show matches together and maybe just give some overall thoughts. So the buy-in had four matches. We had the Bishimon team of Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi. Defeating the Factory's Aaron Solo and QT Marshall. We had Lance Archer defeating Nick Komarodo. Swerve in Our Glory, Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland defeated the Suzuki Goon team of El Desperado and Yoshinobu Kanemaru. And then the main event of the buy in, we had Max Caster and the Gun Club, Austin, Billy, and Colton Gunn, defeating the LA Dojo team of Alex Coughlin, Kevin Knight, the DKC, and Yuya Uemura. So, guys, what are your thoughts on this uh, buy in? I thought it was funny how, for most buy-ins, there's one, maybe two preview matches, right? And they advertised three, and people were criticizing that Q, or not QT. Uh, TK was like, fuck that, another one. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up with four preview matches here. And I got to tell you, like, I, uh, I have been critical in the past of AEW's pay-per-view lengths when it's like, for instance, I didn't love the last pay-per-view. And so when it was really, really long, I felt like because it dragged, it kind of brought the overall enjoyment level for me down. But when it's when it's a show like this and it's just firing on all cylinders, you can inject this in my veins all day. I don't care how many matches it was. And, yeah, even though most of these undercard preview matches weren't necessarily, like, blow away, they, they, you know, you didn't have to, like, log them into your like notebook you know for give them all these like snowflakes and stars but they were short they were fun the crowd was hyped it introduced a lot of other like new japan characters and workers that people might not be as familiar with and they were all stylistically very different archer and komoroto was like a hoss battle and it was very good for like a six minute whatever you know um the standout though was definitely Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland against uh, Suzuki Goon. 
that match wasn't just a good preview match. That was just a good match, period. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not quite as high, but, like, Rich Latta was with us. He threw out four stars. <laughs> and I'm like, the last time I remember watching a preview show this good was, like, maybe that one SummerSlam when the Usos wrestled uh, uh, New Day back in the day, and they had, like, a, a blow-away tag match that nobody seems to remember. But, like... The, the story with Keith Lee and Swerve, they were not on the same page the whole night. And, like, Desperado and Kanemaru, like, took full advantage. They worked the shit out of, like, Keith Lee's leg. And they did it in cool, fun, inventive ways. It wasn't, you know, your slow, plotting, you know, limb work match. No, they were, like, finding all kinds of awesome ways to cut this big man off, ground him, high-flying stuff. Like, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, back in the day, like, rockers against, like, Powers of Pain or something like that. Like, Really, really, really cool match. And then ultimately, like, Keith Lane Swerve were able to still just, like, find an opening, hit their finish, and just get them out of there. But they were on the ropes the whole match, which was, like, kind of cool because it allowed Desperado and, and Kanemaru to kind of show the crowd what they're capable of while also forwarding the dissension story between Keith Lee and Swerve, which, you know, down the line, obviously we know where that's going at some point which I, I thought it was just really good. Yeah, my highlight of the pre-show or or the buy-in was Hiroki Goto. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. As far as New Japan, one of my uh, first shows that I saw was uh, Hiroki Goto versus Minoru Suzuki in a hair versus hair match, and the titles, it was a title versus hair match. And I remember Minoru Suzuki, like, shaved his own head. And I just thought that was the match where I was like, okay, New Japan, is this is something I'm going to watch. It was so physical, and they went in at each other. So when Goto got announced, I got super excited. And when his entrance came out, and it's just like this big, meaty dude, I was, like, very excited that I actually got to see him uh, wrestle live again. And, um, yeah, um, pre-show was pretty in my experience was a rampage you know it was like yeah it it was a bunch of solid matches and very excited i might have i might have did the order a little bit differently if it was an actual rampage but yeah it was a very exciting match uh we got and then we got max caster doing the rap at the end which i very much enjoyed uh yeah i, I just thought it I was just a really fun uh four matches again the highlight just to restate was swerve and keith lee the crowd was like super into him when they came out and, you know, Connemaro, uh, I think that with the whole whiskey thing, uh, got, uh, people very, uh, they were very into the being able to see that live because, you know, you don't get to see that much in America and yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was a really, uh, fun pre-show, a lot of really good matches and, you know, you mentioned Goto and Yoshihashi. I mean, that's how you knew that the Chicago crowd was hyped. Like, they popped huge for Goto and Yoshihashi. Huge. There was, like, God. big, like, Yoshihashi <laughs> chants and Goto chants. And I'm like, okay, we're, yeah. we're, we're in for a show show. Uh, but, yeah, Archer and Kamarota was a lot of fun. You know, big guys uh, throwing each other around and showing off the power. Archer, you know, landing on his head trying to do flips. <laughs> uh, oh, that was scary. He spiked himself again. Yeah. Yeah, which we were in attendance at one of the Dynamite tapings where he injured his neck on, on the moonsault. So that was kind of scary, like, watching that again. Uh, but ended up being fine, good good six-minute match. And like, like you guys mentioned, yeah, Swerve in our glory against Despi and Kanamaru. Definitely the, the best match on the buy-in. Tons of great 
innovative spots from all the guys. And Conor Marlowe has just been on fire this year uh, with his run in the Super Juniors, his, his match with uh, Ishii in the All-Atlantic Tournament. Like, he's having a really fun year, and we saw a lot of that here as well. And like you mentioned, Florida was cool seeing the uh, Satori whiskey spot and just all their interactions and I saw Swerve and Despy tweeting each other after the show, so who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll get a, a singles with Swerve and Despy sometime in, in the future. Um, and they had a main event with the Gun Club and Caster against the LA Dojo. I mean, obviously, as fans of all those Dojo guys, I would have loved to see right. them win or get more, but essentially it turned into a, a two-on-four. Uh, Danhausen was playing some song that was making fun of the Gun Club. So Austin and Colton ran to the back. So essentially it was Billy and Max against four of the L.A. Dojo, which, you know, the, the fans are already super into the whole new act of the acclaimed and the gun club. And so uh, Billy Gunn, man, he was a hot babe face, got that hot tag, took out all four Dojo dudes, uh, hit DKC with the, the one and only and the fame master. And then they got the mic drop for a cat from Caster, that, that elbow drop in. They got the win there. And so, yeah, overall, it's a fun, energetic uh, pre-show match. And we did have a question here from Hawaiian Punch BV. So of all the casualties of the Forbidden Door, why was the biggest one not mentioned? The disappearance of Coglin's Android gear. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we talked about that while, while we were watching it live. We're like, oh, okay, someone put the kibosh on the, uh, the Android gear. You know, these guys got to represent the L.A. Dojo. So, <laughs> but um, that was the one thing I would criticize. It's a small gripe, but, you know, obviously I do think that the L.A. Dojo should have lost here. It makes sense, but I was hoping that they'd get more, a little more spotlight. I know they only had like five minutes and, and, and all that, but it's like they essentially didn't get to do much, and then they just got beat by old Billy Gunn and Max Caster. <laughs> it's not a good look. Former for former boys. IWGP IC title challenger, Billy Gunn. Yeah, now, is he, if he's not a Bullet Club hunter any longer, is he now an LA Dojo Young Lion hunter? Is that his uh, gimmick? Seems like it. <laughs> All I know is daddy ass likes the scissor. So that's, uh, <laughs> no, but that was, yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like the whole two on them, two people beating up for with ease. <laughs> yes. I was like, I was like, I didn't like that. Even like in the crowd, I'm like, I don't, I don't like this. I was hoping maybe that ass boys came back and you know, they won by cheating or something like that. No, it was just a two on force kind of squash match. And, that was interesting that they went that way with it. Yeah, I think they, they know the crowd is really digging the the acclaimed gun club connection. And I know it's one to give them some extra sympathy and get them over. Also, because obviously most people probably don't know the L.A. Dojo guys, uh, especially this new crop like DKC and Kevin Knight and Yomora. Um, so it made sense. They, they, they made up for it later. It's just one of those things like, you know, I would have liked to see them get uh, some cool spots. That's about it. Yeah. All right, well, let's go into the main card now. We'll start with the opener here. We had Minoru Suzuki teaming up with the Jericho Appreciation Society of Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara, and they defeated the team of Eddie Kingston, Shota Shooter Umino, and Wheeler Utah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a kind of a lot to unload here. I mean, you've got Jericho and Sammy Guevara, and obviously they've got this 
deep-seated sort of rivalry, especially with Eddie Kingston. And, like, Wheeler Utah's part of it, obviously, because he's Blackpool Combat Club, but he's been away for most of the feud, spending time in Japan during the um, Best of Super Juniors Tour. So he's kind of only just returned recently, and he hasn't totally been a focal point of the JAS, BCC, you know, um, whole thing. But, you know, he's going to be participating in Blood and Guts and everything like that. So this was kind of a good way to kind of work some interactions between those guys and get him in the midst. Obviously, Eddie Kingston, no love lost there between him and Jericho whatsoever. And so he's kind of just like this bull that sees red when he sees those guys. <laughs> yeah. like he's just like, he, he can't even think clearly. Like he's not even trying to win matches. He's just, you know, in attack mode the entire time. And then you have the New Japan guys, Suzuki and Shota Umino, and there is kind of like some connections there. I mean, Suzuki, and we all know about Eddie Kingston's love for Japanese wrestling and his deference for it. And so like the interactions between him and Suzuki, he had to be loving that stuff. And then Shota Umino kind of has a connection to Blackpool Combat Club, even though he's not part of them. He is connected to John Moxley. Like they were, he was his, you know, uh, personal young lion back in the, the the New Japan days and sort of his underling, like his protege. And originally when this match was announced, well, not announced, but on paper, Moxley was going to be involved in this match and they were going to reunite the Death Riders as part of the gimmick here. That didn't end up happening, but, you know, Shota Umino was kind of included in the match by, via extension to his connection to John Moxley. Plus... Going back even further, when Jericho first got into New Japan and kind of created his whole heel persona, he actually attacked a young lion, Shota Umino, in the midst of his match with uh, Kenny Omega in the Tokyo Dome and, like, you know, did it right in front of his dad, Red Shoes, and, like, put him in the, the lion tamer and, like, beat his ass and has always kind of, like, brought it up time and time again. And so the Jericho and Shota Umino connection like kind of came back. There were callbacks to, to all of that in this match as well. So just kind of a lot going on, and that almost sounds convoluted, but they mixed it up so properly that this match really, really over-delivered. I mean, I thought that this was just going to be, you know, come in, your regular dynamite, six-man tag, very fun, kind of a cool opener, and then things just kind of go from there. No, these guys... When, when they came out, this really set the tone for the whole entire show because I was like, holy fuck, every single one of these guys has their, like, working shoes on. Nobody's, like, phoning it in. Everybody's going 100 miles per hour, and they just melded and meshed so well. The crowd was on fire. Like, I was like, holy fuck. And by the time it was over, I was like, oh, what did we just see? Was that, like, four and a quarter, four and a half? I don't know. That match fucking ruled. <laughs> like, I don't even... And I, uh, oh, and then... The biggest thing, Shota Umino came off like a superstar. This is a guy that has struggled in Rev Pro. They have tried to make him look like a star. They have given him big opportunity after big opportunity, and he has looked lackadaisical. He's looked like he couldn't put it all together. His body has not been in the shape it needed to be. And there have been, like, you know, within the, the people in the know have said, like, whispered, man, I don't know if Shota Umino is going to be this big superstar that everybody thinks he's going to be. Bro, he put that shit to bed on this night. He was a bona fide star, bro. And, I mean, a lot of it probably does have to do 
with his connection to Mox and, and kind of the nostalgia of sh- the shooter gimmick. Yeah. But, bro, he was awesome in this match. And, like, those guys did so much to put him over while still getting their stuff. It was awesome. This match ruled. Yeah. Um, you want to take a hot crowd? You want to make them hotter? You start off with Jericho's music. You start <laughs> off with Judas. You start <laughs> off with the sing-along. Uh, that, was, uh, that, was, that got everybody in it. And then you... Then you come back with Maduro Suzuki's music. Like, probably the two hottest themes, most crowd participation themes you have right back and forth. And then uh, Amino comes out. And I'm, first thing I notice, because I haven't honestly remember seeing him in a while, is how built he is, how much he has physically changed. He very much, like, in his physical and how he shows more of the upper body strength, he almost looks like Tanahashi, like a young yeah. Tanahashi mm-hmm. in his uh, physical makeup. How over Yuta uh, was when he came out. It was just like, I mean, De- uh, Brian Danielson and John Moxley. I know Brian Danielson said like one of his big things was try to help the young people. They have they those matches with Yuta have just taken him to this whole different level. He is beloved by the fans there, and uh, then Eddie Kingston. He is the living embodiment of on site. I mean, when he comes out, he looks like he's ready to just fight and attack. And I love this match, uh, just how how Kingston was out of control. Like, even Yuta didn't even know what to do. He was trying to get him out the way when he was uh, uh, he was attacking uh, Sammy Guevara. It's like, Eddie Kingston's just so fired up. I Man, I just really loved it. I thought Amino looked great, and then all the fans were into it. And it was just fun. And Sammy Guevara is just Sammy Guevara. He's just really, really good wrestler. I just thought this was a great way to kick off the show. So much excitement, so much tension, so much physical violence, and then Minoru Suzuki, you know, being Minoru Suzuki. When he hit that pile driver, I thought the uh, I thought the roof was going to come off because everybody was waiting on that to happen. Yeah. I was, I, I, yeah, perfect first match. I mean, you couldn't have started off with a better first match. Yeah, that match was just full of energy and absolutely loved it, and guys made a lot of great points and you know you, t- you talk about uh umino josh and you know we've we've seen we've been watching him in rev pro you know he's faced osprey he's faced ricky knight jr he got a lot he's been getting a lot of opportunities you know they've been trying to really get him over he has the the ace apparel he has that tanahashi look and they've been trying everything and it just really hasn't worked out yet in rev pro but you brought him here on the aw stage where that Hardcore AEW fans that they, they watched New Japan when Mox was there. They watched that G1. They watched the relationship between Moxley and Shooter develop. Um, so people are, are very invested. We know several times they've been trying to do this Death Rider reunion, but it's kind of something's always come in the way of them actually having them team up together on a New Japan show. So once again, here I'm sure Mox was going to be the original guy in this match, but. With the punk injury, he had to be in the, in the main event, uh, but so it, it still worked out well. And yeah, I thought Umino got a great spotlight, big chance uh, from the crowd, big let's go shooter chance. And you know, I tweeted out, I'm like, I think Umino should finish his excursion in AEW. Um, I think with the Mox connection, you, you could put him with the Blackpool Combat Club, change his look up a little bit, and I think he would really benefit from working in the U.S. crowds, working on. TV and working with some of these AEW guys, I think that would be very beneficial for his growth and capitalizing on this momentum that they have going from this pay-per-view. 
And I thought it was a great way to kind of interact the the blood and guts thing we're having with Eddie and Utah in there. And obviously, you know, Eddie's not a part of the Blackpool Combat Club, but he is friends with Mock. So there was kind of a little bit, there's a little bit of tension there with, you know, Mock is supposed to be Eddie's best friends, but he's rolling around with, you know, Brian, Regal, uh, Utah. Um, so a little bit of tension there, but it's a really fun matchup. And of course, came down to the end. With uh, Jericho hitting Umino with a, a beautiful juice effect for their team to get the win, and also, you know, a stipulation was added to this match: the winning team got the advantage going into Blood and Guts, which kind of tipped off who was going to win because Blood and Guts slash War Games usually work best and makes sense when the heels have the advantage. So uh, Jericho Appreciation Society and Suzuki getting the win here made a ton of sense. So that way. Uh, Jericho's crew has the advantage going into blood and guts uh, this Wednesday uh, And also I really like the interactions too with Suzuki and Umino and Just kind of playing up It was like you saw a young lion against Suzuki What you would see in Japan They just had some really good interactions I think they could really build on that Whenever uh, Umino comes back to Japan Yeah, absolutely We got a few questions about this match in particular Yeah, so our good friend Sir Sam Says Shudo Umino had a bit of a breakthrough performance. What happens next? Um, you know, I I can't say that I disagree with you, Jeremy. As things have opened up, I mean, he had a great uh, you know excursion, um, a great learning experience and time in Britain and in Red Pro and all that. But like, maybe they should just bring him to AEW. I mean, that might be something cool. Um, it is something that they haven't done just yet we've seen the crossover of people you know we've seen lions work darks and elevations and get a spotlight here or there but like aw hasn't really been a destination for any particular uh excursion young lion just yet with them working together that's not out of the question and maybe this could be his finishing school And i mean if that's the case what a great place to go i mean it seems to be, I mean, look at uh, Takeshita, who, in my opinion, is a guy that's way, way more experienced, has a lot more big match, you know, experience. And he's obviously he's like working the shows when, when called upon, but he's also, you know, working the, the big national indies and getting a lot of different kinds of looks and exposures. Um, they could do the same thing with Shota Amino. It kind of reminds me of when Jay White went to Ring of Honor to mm. kind of finish up. And, um, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that or, you know, if they, if they have, if they're not going to do it, they should think about it. And you brought up ring of honor and that's exactly what I was going to say. You have this whole different company that is being Tony Khan is using and uh, building and have a pay-per-view. You have the pure division. That's kind of become like a younger guy's division when, when they gave it to Utah and he's going to feud with Garcia Throw Shota Amino right in there and have some banger matches, and it'll let him develop that way. You also have Dark in Dark Elevation, where they have tons of matches that they work every week. You know, it's just getting in ring, uh, getting time in ring, and then strongest shot in America. He can wrestle there. There's plenty of opportunities for him to grow. And after Sunday, I just want to see him grow because I think the sky's the limit for him. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely so much uh, potential for Shooter and his future and i think yeah going to america should be the next move you know later in the show chris jericho shot him with a fireball um in the face because he's a wizard 
Um, so I, I, it feels like Jericho clearly wants to do a singles match of Umino down in the future. So I think obviously you know you, you keep him off TV for a while to sell the, the face burning, um, and then you bring him back, and then you have him kind of link up with Mox and them, and you, you do a Jericho Shooter match, and then you ha- you have Shooter on Dark Russell guys get some wins, and then have him work some programs. I mean you can finally do him and Mox teaming up, and I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. Like you mentioned, Floyd, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, the whole Ring of Honor thing. I mean. I know right now they're only kind of doing pay-per-views, but if they ever eventually get some kind of TV or do a YouTube TV or whatever they're going to end up doing, I think having a guy like Umino in there could be really good to work with some of the Ring of Honor guys that they're going to bring in there, and AEW guys will be working Ring of Honor also. So I think there's just a lot, ton of great opportunities for here for him here in the States. Plus, he could work New Japan strong when they do their tapings. And then he can travel indies. I mean, Mox still does GCW. You can have him and Mox do some GCW shows and just really get him a well-rounded experience here in the States. Well, here's the thing, too, um, with all of that. Historically, there's a lot of different uh, places people could hypothetically go for excursions. And, you know, this isn't to dog the, the uh, dojo system. I mean, we know how great and successful the dojo system has been at producing top-level performers and the excursion system as well. But one thing that we haven't seen in a long time is someone go out on excursion and really get over and make an impact during their excursion and then come back with a lot of, like, hype. I mean, the last time that that arguably actually happened has to be when Hiromu Takahashi was working as Kamaitachi in CMLL in, what, 2015, 2016? That's a long time ago. Yeah. And a lot of guys have come back with success since then, but nobody has come back as a full-fledged, ready-to-go, main event level type of star the way Hiromu did. And I feel like something that AEW has been able to do and already has a proven track record of is take young talent and make them household names and make them big stars. And it reminds me of like back in the old days, remember um, uh, Jim Crockett promotions was able to do that for Muda and Muto. He was a guy that was, everyone knew when he was coming back, he was earmarked to be a, a mega superstar and they, they put him in that position. He excelled and then they sent him back and, you know, we're off to the races I don't see why Tony Khan and them, given how successful they've been with guys like Darby Allen and Sammy Guevara and Jungle Boy and Wheeler Utah, that they couldn't do something similar if they were invested and inclined to, that is, with Shoto Vito. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. Uh, next question here from Les Commission 7252. I've never watched Shota Umino in the ring after his Young Lions days in 2018-2019, but after, after his showing in the tag match, I've seen a young Tanahashi in him, and I hope to see a bright future for him. What do you guys think? Well, I think we just kind of covered that, uh, answering Sir Sam's question. But, yeah, I, I think the future is bright for Umino, and I think a U.S. excursion would definitely help develop him. Um, then Wizfaster says, asking for financial advice for the young boy. Is it time to go long on shooter? <laughs> well, I do not hold license, so I am not allowed to give out uh, advice. And even when I do, I'm not allowed to sell away from my uh, broker. But uh, with that being said, since this is just wrestling related, I will change 
his status on the recommendation chart from outperform to a full-fledged buy. I am giving you a buy recommend on Shotomino. How's that? Sounds good. <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, I came out. I'm a fan. I'm going to go out of my way to make sure I'm watching his matches wherever he ends up. Nice. Now let's talk about a match. I'm sure, Floyd, you are very excited to talk about the three-way tag match for the IWGP tag titles and the Ring of Honor World Tag Team titles. FTR, Cash Wheeler and Dax Hardwood. They defeated our good friend Rocky Romero and Trent Beretta, Rapungi Vice, and the United Empire team of the great Ocon and Jeff Cobb to become the new IWGP Tag Champs, and now they add those goals along with their Ring of Honor goals and their AAA Tag Team titles. Floyd, I'm going to back up here and just let you let you go off, man. Seven. Seven stars. Uh, I was over the moon to just be in the building for this match uh, with the, uh, the idea that FTR could come away with the new uh, IWGP Tag Team titles. And it was the match was everything I wanted. Um, I'm like, so I'm to the right of the ramp. If you're coming down the ramp as a wrestler. So there was that moment where Dax kind of bumps and goes outside and grabs his shoulder. Let me tell you that this man, I'm like 15 feet, maybe 20 feet away from him. This man selling was like on another level. Cause you saw the look on his face. It looked like, genuine disappointment like he had and he just kept saying my shoulder I think it's out I think it's out and I'm just like oh shit I mean they're having this big match and I'm sitting here and I'm watching he hurt and I'm like I'm like I'm like completely I am worked I am worked completely worked and then someone messages oh they're talking about it on commentary I was like oh okay so he's okay because you know generally if it's a thing you know, they kind of go away and just kind of let them go away and really don't mention it. But apparently they were driving home that fact. And then they went through the rest of the match. And Cash held it down. Uh, I, I, I want to – Great O'Karn and Jeff Cobb, you look at them and you think that shouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it really shouldn't. They just don't look like two people that would work together. They are so good, and I think they found that Okarn's best role is with Jeff Cobb because it just they just mold together, and you know it's kind of the Okarn thing is kind of a goofy character, but it's like Jeff Car Jeff Cobb being the Olympian kind of grounds it and almost makes it make sense. And they were out there putting on this great, I thought great performance, uh, and you know Rocky Romero and Trent. I mean they've been doing this forever, so. Very exciting match. Everything's bouncing. But then the moment, the Ricky Morton moment, Dax comes back with his arm wrapped. I'm I, There's a little kid on me, and I'm jumping up, and I can't tell which is louder, me or the kid, <laughs> because I'm so excited that he's coming back to finish the match. And, yeah, and just how the match finished, how it worked, him just working with, uh, working with the left arm, they did the double uh, suplex, and then Cash did the uh, did the splash on top of it, and then the setup for the uh, setup for the big rig 
kind of like came out of nowhere, but I saw everyone was kind of down and they hit the three and I just jumped up and said, yes, and started <laughs> holding up seven in the air, like seven stars, seven stars. And yeah. So, uh, I was very excited as you can imagine that my boys won the tag belts. Uh, that's why are, the, why are they calling themselves seven stars? Okay. So it's for every major title they've won. So you don't you don't get a star when you win a title. No, <laughs> you get a star when you have no. a great match. <laughs> so he, he so what they're saying is screw Dave, the only stars that matter is world title wins. Nah, so when they won a the title, when they win the title, that's a star. And uh, that's, that's where a, the that's seven gimmick. That's where the seven stars comes from. <laughs> uh yeah. I don't even know no, 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 like you talk to Dax, don't bring up Dave. <laughs> he just starts saying, he's like, no. No, no. He he doesn't hate the guy or anything. It's just, yeah. It's just, it's, it's very funny when he goes into it because, uh, you know, it's all about emotion. It's about everything. And that's what I thought this match did for me, of course, because I am emotionally tied. It definitely played on my emotions for a moment there. And to see the kid behind me, he was about 12, and he was, you know, he was watching – the wrestling through the lens of yeah. not knowing everything. And it was just, it was amazing kind of just watching him enjoy the show. Yeah. And it, uh, I was telling Rich, he was, uh, uh, I think this was a young Rich Latta because he kept screaming for everybody to flip. <laughs> He's like, do a flip, do a flip, do a flip. And I was like, man, this is, I'm like, this dude would be in the front row of Rich Ladder Pro Wrestling. I was like, man, they did a flip because he just kept screaming it over and over again. I just wanted him to shut up. I'm like, <laughs> dude. Uh, but yes, it was it was a very fun match. Seven stars, new shirt already purchased, of course. Oh my man, this <laughs> man, yeah, I was super marked. Oh my god, oh god. I yes. almost I almost got a tattoo on my left arm. No, said Mark, don't do that. Just said Mark. <laughs> Just, for, just for, honestly, you inspired it because <laughs> I'll let you just like <laughs> don't you, do that. Yeah, just get marked. Have you be like, no, oh my but gosh, that's oh my who God. I am. <laughs> so, um, yeah, another fantastic match on a fantastic card. There were a couple things though that I do got to criticize. Number one, why the fuck are Rapongi Vice wearing all white, knowing good and well that they're not taking home any gold whatsoever? You don't show up on the big show wearing white and gold if you're not taking home the fucking gold. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was kind of mad about that. I'm like, maybe, maybe, these... maybe they thought they were winning. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Plans change. <laughs> Plans change. <laughs> um, the, other, the other thing, too, um, the injury angle was awesome. And it was really, really well done. And I have to concur. I thought Dax did a fantastic job really selling it. I, at first, I was kind of convinced myself watching it. Like, oh, this might be real. What um, Ultimately, once they started doing the spots where, like, uh, is it Cash or Dash? Cash. 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 When Cash keeps trying to go for the tag and there's no one there, I'm like, oh, okay, they're working it into the map. This isn't. This is an angle. It's not real. The drawback, though, is doing an injury angle like that at that point in the show. And this isn't, this isn't something they could have predicted, but there was an actual injury at the close of the IWGP heavyweight title match. It's like you had two major kind of like injury things happening on the same show. It kind of actually detracted some of the impact of this angle. 
where I think if this had been the only injury thing, it, it might have even been a little more memorable, you know. But all in all, the match, the mechanics, you did a great job giving us that rundown there, um, Floyd. But uh, one thing I did notice was um, that, that you didn't make mention of was uh, the, the flopping selling coming from great Ocon. Like Ocon was like, all right, I'm in America. I'm going to just ham it up. And this dude was like taking stuff and popping up like he was fucking Scott Hall. <laughs> so funny. Um, the one thing though too, and I'll uh, kick it over to you, Jeremy. I, I know everyone kind of assumed that FTR was probably going to win. And I mean, I, even I predicted that as well, but the politics of it are what kind of gave me a little bit of pause where I was like, are they coming to Japan to defend these belts? Because, I mean, if they win the titles, I would have to assume that that's probably the long-term play. Um, but then the fact that they're the AAA champions while being IWGP champions, I don't know how, like, you know, their Mexican partner CMLL feels about that, if that's allowed or, you know, what kind of allowances are being made here for that. Because, obviously, that belt wasn't on the line. So if hypothetically, like, let's say if they made a, let's say if they made a compromise and put it on Rapongi Vice because they're half New Japan, half AEW, that's kind of a happy medium there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, it does look like long-term we're probably going to get a Bucks versus FTR rematch, the trilogy for all four titles, which is going to be pretty epic. And this match really did a great job setting that stage. Obviously, Cobb and uh, Okan, they're going into the G1. They don't, they're not going to be defending those belts anytime soon anyways. Um, so it's not like New Japan necessarily needs them for this tour. But um, my, the one drawback, I will say, I won't be happy about this if hypothetically everything FTR does with the IWGP titles remains stateside and strictly on AEW television. If they don't go to Japan and actually wrestle in New Japan, then I feel like this is kind of a wasted opportunity altogether. I do agree with that. I want to see them in the Dome on January 4th. I want to see them in Tokyo having big matches. Uh, yeah, I I want to see them against G.O.D. I want to go see them against it. I want them in the ta- World Tag League. I want them wrestling in Japan. I mean, I don't know if we'll get that, but that's what I want just because that'll be fun. I mean, I just I want to see them wrestle everyone, match up with everyone in different styles. So I completely uh, agree with Josh. If they never make it to Japan, it feels like a huge wasted opportunity. Yeah, and I don't know whether or not they're going to work World Tag League, but I think it would be great to have a team like FTR in World Tag League. You know, a time of the year where people kind of zone out of New Japan. A lot of people don't really watch all of World Tag League. You know, I know it's the 50th year and they're trying to do new and cool things. Well, I think having FTR in there would bring a lot of buzz and attention to World Tag League. So I'm on the same boat for all of you guys. I definitely think these guys, I don't know what their visa situation is like, but they, they should be working on visas and they, these guys should hopefully be in Japan. Uh, I know G1's happening, but we got some big shows that will come up in the fall. Destruction, King of Pro Wrestling. Let's get FTR over there and have them defend the belts against somebody. Uh, one last thing I just want to point out real quick on this match. I thought uh, Rapungi Vice, Rocky, and Trent did a great job in this match as well. I think yeah. these guys are such a underrated tag team. These guys, I mean, they haven't teamed regularly in a while, and they got together here and clicked like usual, and they, they were so great where they were at. They did the strong zero on Jeff Cobb, which is kind of a scary move to do on a guy that big, but they nailed that. And 
I just yeah. thought they like they were in the right place at the right time all throughout the match and really helped move that match together, especially once you know they're doing the injury angle with Dax and they were kind of the, the main ones in there. And I, you know, I hope that they continue to use Rapungi Vice as a team on AEW. Hopefully, we'll see them maybe they do some stuff in uh, New Japan. I know with Trent being a heavy and Rocky being a junior, I wonder if we can somehow just get them competing more for the heavyweight uh, tag team titles in Japan. Uh, we'll see about that. But yeah, overall, really, really fun matchup here. Excited to see what FTR is going to do um, with the titles. Hopefully, like we said, they'll defend in Japan. So the next match, we had the AEW All-Atlantic title four-way match. And the Bastard Pack is our first and new All-Atlantic champion. He defeated the Wild Rhino, Clark Connors, Malachi Black, and Miro to become the first ever all-Atlantic champion. Yeah, so another really great match, great performances from everybody all around. I mean, you know, um, I've been not on the air necessarily because we this isn't an AEW podcast, so we haven't discussed that length, but I've been critical of this particular, the introduction of this title and everything like that. But it's here now, it's happening, so it is what it is. And, you know, we got this four-way to kind of kick things off, and it was supposed to be packed and uh, Miro and Malachi Black against Shingo, or I'm sorry, Ishii. Obviously, Ishii was unable to, uh, you know, be part of this match due to injury, and so the runner-up in that um, tournament that New Japan had, had established was Clark Connors, and a lot of people were really counting Clark Connors out and dogging him and, you know, saying it was like three stars and then just some guy, and yada, yada. And I think a lot of people just hadn't really gotten a lot of exposure to Clark Connors or seen what he's capable of doing or what he's made of or anything like that. And for anyone that's been watching New Japan for a good solid amount of time now, or even say the Super Juniors recently, you already kind of know that Clark Connors has the goods and he's got a lot of star potential. And obviously in this particular instance, they needed to have him be the fall guy, right? And um, I was actually, I thought Miro was going to win so much so that after, uh, until I checked, I forgot that Pac won this match at all <laughs> until later. And I was like, Miro's the champion. And then I remember, like, oh, no, 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 Pac actually did win this match. So um, going back to what I was saying, though, since he, he had to be the guy that goes over, he had to beat Clark Connors. People don't know him like Ishii. He doesn't have the reputation of all these other guys. So, hypothetically, this could have been disastrous. It could have been a situation where it's like, uh, he's the fall guy, and he obviously got beat. Just a, another young lion loses, LOL. But So, it really fell on them as performers, the established AEW guys, to get Clark Connors over in this performance to make him matter in the match so that when he did lose, it meant something. And that is exactly what happened. Everybody in the match was phenomenal. Um but Clark, like, couldn't get anything going. He was getting owned by these guys. He looked like he was out of his league every time he tried to, like, get something started. And you could kind of feel the groundswell of, like, crowd support behind him because it's like, damn, they're really kicking the shit out of him. And then that infamous spot with the uh, spear on the outside into the table where he finally got to, like, show himself, and then he went on a rampage just beating everybody's asses. And, like, the crowd got in a match that had packed Miro and Alistair Black, the crowd got behind Clark Connors from New Japan Strong, the LA Dojo kid. Like, 
that is so fucking wild. Like, I don't know if any other atmosphere this would have worked. It maybe it had to be this crowd on this night, but damn it, it fucking worked. And Clark Connors came off looking like a star. Everybody else was incredible. Miro came so close to winning the title so many times. I thought it was like a foregone conclusion. So every time he didn't win, I felt like they were just really good, like false finishes. And then ultimately like the arm break spot with the, you know, everything and going into the brutalizer, that's what really like, you know, closed out the match. But this match ruled Uh, just again, you know, boom, 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 one, two, three, like standout match after standout match after standout match. Like it's incredible. So this is a match that like, like, you know, the three main AEW guys were like super over and then there was Clark Connors and everything you kind of said, I was like, okay, we couldn't get Goto. We couldn't get, um, we couldn't get anyone else in this match. It's like what I was saying. And I come out and the Rhino, he kills it. Cause I watched this match with uh, Ishii and I thought he did a really good job. I thought they had a really good match, but it was just like, these three were clearly on a different level and he came out and he established himself that he can probably work with anybody in the world in this match. He did. He, you know, they told a story. He, he wasn't quite up to stuff. And then it was just like the rhino. The, the I think that's his thing. The rhino inside of him came out and he started charging everybody. And Oh my God, the pop on the spear through the table was amazing was definitely the pop of the uh of the uh pop of that match and then uh Miro hit the game over and had it on Pac and I, and I think he's one of the first people to like really just drag himself out of that move you know he he usually will bring you all the way back and tap you out that way but he wasn't able to do that on Pac and you know Malachi uh when they finally kind of took out Miro well, I hit him. Uh, hit him with the kick, and it was just these amazing moments. The, a great multi-man match, and then the final was Pack finally, uh, you know, grabbing the move. Uh, he tapped him out, correct? Am I, yeah, am with I the, yeah, brutalizer. With the brutalizer, and he got the finish. And it was like, it was like a, uh, Tony Khan's like, you know, he's been getting kind of kind of a grand groundswell of crap. Because the AEW original guys have not been getting anything. Now they go back to Pack. He was the AEW original. He was at the press conference. He wins this title. He's the first champion. There is no one to me better to be the first champion because Pack has this belt. You can put him on on any show, any match. He's against any opponent. He's going to put on an amazing match. He's going to be that worker in the middle of the show that can just, you know, take the crowd. You can put him at the main event. You can put him at the beginning of the show. It's going to, uh, he's going to be great with it. And because, you know, he wrestles internationally, he can take this as a traveling belt. I am looking forward to what Pac does to tie, uh, with the title. I picked Malachi Black to uh, win it, and I, you know, I was very much okay with that happening. But when Pac won it, my, like, level and expectations for everything going to the belt went way up and my excitement for like his the first defenses went way up. Yeah, I'm very excited about Pac winning as well. I, I love Pac and like you mentioned, he's a he's a day one AW guy. I mean he was a guy that was in the world title picture. He had a feud with Kenny Omega at the beginning of part of the company. He feuded with Hangman Page in the beginning of the company. Like Pac bro, was bro, a, forget all that. He came 
out to the initial press conference in gear. Yes, <laughs> that man's always in gear. And uh, yeah, I mean, Pac has been a building block in the AEW uh, in AEW it- itself, and with all the single stuff he did at the beginning of the company, and then transitioning into Death Triangle. Um, you know, the pandemic really hurt the momentum he had going, and he wasn't able to get into the country. And then when he was able, he had to kind of going back and forth to see his family because with the the travel restrictions from the UK. But it seems like he's here more often now, and uh, just very excited that yeah, he's the the champion now. He's going to have great defenses against people. He's going to have great TV matches, great pay per view matches, and so I'm glad that they did. You know, go back with the AW original and go back with Pack in a, a singles role because he really does excel in singles matches and. Um, you know, I got to second all the comments on our boy Clark Connors. You know, we've been watching him as a young lion in Japan. You know, the the New Japan um, Cup, the young young lion cup, and and being on New Japan strong and developing this wild rhino character and the feuds that he's had with Filthy Tom and, and some of the guys there on New Japan strong. We've just kind of seen him grow, and we saw him in Best of Super Juniors this year, which. You know, we kind of talked about he was kind of treated some almost like a young lion because he didn't win maybe quite as much as we thought he was going to win. And so then also here being put in with three AW stars, you were kind of wondering, all right, what's going to happen here? But like you guys mentioned, I thought they did a great job of getting him over and making him a star and making him hang in there with these AW guys. And I um, mean, it got to the point where I was like losing my mind, like getting behind him. I'm like, he's like firing up and we're like wondering, well, you know, Ishii was in this match. What if Ishii was going to win? And right. you know, Clark has to win. And like you mentioned, Floyd, he hits the, the spear through the table on Miro. Big pop. Crowd's losing their mind. Chanting for Clark Connors. And he goes in. And he's running wild. Snap power slam on Malachi Black. He hits the trophy kill, which is his finish. Which, if you don't watch Strong, you probably didn't know that. But like for me and Josh, who know what his finish is, he hits the trophy kill on Pac. And we're like, Wait, is Clark gonna win this thing? Yeah, I bit, I bit on it. I, I think I stood up in the middle of the theater, like I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh, Clark's gonna win this." Uh, but then the pin got broken up. Uh, but eventually, like, leading down to him um, tapping out to the brutalizer. So yeah, I thought Clark did great. And we had a comment here from at Sif Gang or Die on Twitter saying, "No question, just hope NJPW realizes what a star making match that could be for Connors." Um, and I think Connors is in a very similar boat as Umino right now, where they had these highlights on this big pay-per-view that was, you know, about 100,000 buys. You had a sold-out crowd. Um, I think they really need to find a way to capitalize on the momentum that happened on this pay-per-view with Umino and Connors. And again, why not have Connors do some more AEW appearances? I know he's going to be in Japan uh, next week on a New Japan Road Tour, and he'll probably be in Japan more since he was in Super Juniors. But while he's in the States and not doing anything Get him on AEW, get him on Dynamite, get him on Rampage, get him on, on Dark, like get him some more matches that really capitalize on the momentum. You know, you want to create new stars that will attract people in America. Well, you're, you're starting to get people over in America, so capitalize on that. So you could use a Clark Connors to draw in America. You can use a Shooter Umino to draw in America because clearly they're, they're still going to do strong tapings. They're still going to do these, um, you know, pay-per-views on Fight TV. You need to create new draws that live here in America and I think Clark Carnes is a guy that I can really count on. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, yeah, I just I echo all those same sentiments. I hope they follow up on it. If they don't, that would be tragic. One interesting thing, you know, he was on the show. The rest of the L.A. Dojo guys were on the show. Some of the, you know, Yuya Yamora and Shota Mino. No Carl Fredericks. 
yeah, the, the heat is real uh, with, yeah. with Carl in the office right now. So, yeah, Carl could have been a good guy to come in this spot or be somewhere else on the show in that maybe that, that buy-in match. But clearly there's, there's some issues there. But, you know, hopefully that gets all settled and eventually Fredericks will be back in action. Well, he's a very talented guy. And uh, hopefully they can work things out and he can get things on track. But I'm starting to feel like if they don't, let's say, hypothetically, this would be the second time someone won that Young Lions Cup and it didn't work out. Maybe you, maybe if you're a Young Lion, you don't want to win that. <laughs> first first uh, Katsuya Kitamura, now Carl Fredericks. You know, what's going on? Yeah. So let's move on to the next matchup here. We had the Dudes with Attitudes, Darby Allen, Shingo Takagi, and Sting. They defeated the... Bullet Club team of El Fantasmo and Matt and Nick Jackson, the Young Bucks. Young Bucks being back in Bullet Club for one night only. They had the old Bullet Club Young Bucks tights. They had the old uh, jean jacket that they had with all the patches, like the PWG logo, the Ring of Honor logo, Bullet Club logo, New Japan logo. So kind of the old throwback look, teaming with ELP. They were accompanied by uh, Hikaleo. And I mean, this match just starts in the most awesome way. Also, because <laughs> uh, he got hold because he's not in the match. Yeah, hey, you got an easy payday. All he had to do was, you know, be a manager for the night. Who had uh, an easier payday, him or the uh, the Ass Boys? Probably the Ass Boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this match. So yeah, Bull Club's making their entrance. You know, they they do the transition from the Young Bucks music to the Bull Club music. You know, they're all. To sweeten and doing the Young Bucks pose, the streamers pop out. You think it's a regular entrance? Boom! Lights go out, and then lights come on. You see Sting up in the rafters. We all thought, you know, it's United Center. You know, throwback WCW. This man's going to come propelling down. Um, that was not the case. He lights go off again. Back on. He's on top of the stage. Does a huge cross body onto all four of these guys, and then the matches are kind of starts with a. Wild yeah. brawl from there. Bro, first off, when that light hit the ceiling, I was so nervous because I was like, oh, my God, they're, like, in the United Center. Is there any chance he actually repels? And I was just thinking, like, with all the Owen Hart, like, stuff lately, maybe they shouldn't do that. That just seems not smart. Luckily, that's not what happened here. Instead, we had crazy-ass 63. He's 63, right? Yeah, 63. 63-year-old Sting jumping off the the entrance way onto these dudes i mean that's like a 12 foot maybe probably like 12 foot like elevated uh thing and it's like bro he never even did this stuff when he was when like when, when he was his prime he never even did this stuff like and he's out here doing this stuff he looks better in 2022 <laughs> than he did in 2006 it is so freaking crazy it's so crazy <laughs> And um, we had a we had a bunch of banter on the um, opening uh, of this show that got lost, where we were talking about the dudes with attitudes, and I was like, you know, Shingo's in this team, and um, you know he's the heavy, so essentially he took Elegante's spot basically on this team. <laughs> like if this was like the uh, you know like the old days when Arn gave his spot to Kurt, it'd be. Uh, you know, Giant Gonzalez giving his spot to uh, the Dragon Shingo Takagi, essentially. The moment of this match was when they did the uh, the low LIJ fist thing. I just went crazy with Shingo and Sting. It was uh, amazing. And uh, Darby hitting the finisher was great. 
Um, I just, I just really love the excitement. You know, when he went into the last of the dragon, uh, another good spot. And I was just really happy. And the young bucks do what they do. They make great matches. They have great matches. Uh, ELP, the back rig. I've never seen anyone get so over on the back rig. That was the loudest pop <laughs> for a back rig I've ever heard in my life. I, it was so over the top, so crazy. But it was so good. It was so good. It was just like everybody's just in this anticipation. And you know what's happening. <laughs> but then he does it. And it's like, oh, my God. That was the most vicious back rate in the history of wrestling. So, yeah, I thought I thought this match, uh, 100% just pure eye candy, wrestling, fun, excitement. Everybody, everybody looked good. Everybody got to hit their spot. And I love Shingo. Just, you know, Cavs would come in, hit your finisher. It's just awesome. Love that. Yeah, Matt Jackson has always done in the past, uh, you know, a very convoluted spot dealing with cartwheels and flips and yada, yada, yada. And then it leads to the backbreak spot. And then, uh, you know, in recent years, ELP, since he's joined the Bullet Club, he's kind of adopted that himself, but even, you know, kind of made it his own. So as soon as those two guys came out, like I told Jeremy, I was like, bro, they've got to both do the backbreak <laughs> thing. Like they both have to do it. And like, they absolutely did, and when they did, I was just like, I don't know. I was just loving it. Yeah, that was a really fun spot. I mean, yeah, ELP's been doing it in Japan. It gets over there as well. And so, yeah, it's just really funny. I mean, a big deal of that spot. So that was cool. Um, and, yeah, I thought Chingo uh, looked really good in the match as well. And I love that he did a transition of the Made in Japan into the last oh. of the Dragon. Um, that was dope. I hope he keeps doing that because that looks tight. And Yeah, yeah I've never seen him do that before. Yeah, uh, I mean Sting with the stage dive, and then throughout the match, you know he he no sell the uh, super kick party, uh, which was hilarious. He no sold yeah. the the, uh, the the titty twister from uh, ELP. Uh, yeah, I saw one cage match reviewer get super pissed about that spot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't know. For me, like yeah, sometimes I'm not the biggest fan of that stuff, but when you use it sparingly. On a show like this, I'm fine with it. You know what I mean? Like, if 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 it if it's okay to watch a New Japan show with Taguchi showing his bare ass, I can deal with an ELP Twitty to Titty Twister like every now and again. It's fine. Oh my god, I forgot about the Titty Twister. Oh my god, <laughs> that was so funny because Sting just like looking at him with this like, "Are you really trying to do that to me?" Look like. <laughs> You know, I'm staying. I'm the icon. I'm not selling that shit. <laughs> and then, and yeah, it was. I was like, oh, dude, it was so much cool stuff. I actually forgot that one, and it was one of my favorite parts of the match because it was just like so ridiculous, and it was, it was, it, it just like the crowd just ate it up. I ate it up. Screw the, that. Screw the crowd. I ate it up. I just thought it was really cool. Now the only drawback to all of that, they came to one point in the match where, like, Sting was like, you know a house on fire and just beating everybody up and, um, you know, through the, the bucks out of the ring. And then it's just him, him and ELP and the spot is supposed to be like ELP thinks he did something to sting. And then he turns around and stings standing right there. And he's like acting all scared. And he puts his hands in the air and it's clearly a setup for sting to do his own, you know, twister to, to ELP. And like, the setup was right there, and I don't know what Sting was thinking. He just forgot about the spot. <laughs> he goes out he, after he threw Nick and Matt Jackson outside. He followed them outside to keep beating their ass, and like 
Nick clearly like it's like, bro, go back inside. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Sting forgot the spot. So Sting like had to get back in the ring and like at that point ELP like had turned around, so he had to like grab him by the shoulder, turn around, and then give him the twister. And um, yeah, that was the only thing that like kind of took you a little bit out of the moment. But other than that, I mean, bro, uh, seeing the Bucks interact with Shingo and run like all these like really cool, fast-paced Dragon Gate-esque spots, which like I'm sure they were loving getting to do that. None of these guys really have ever worked with Sting. So, you know, they really kind of made the whole match about Sting, you know, uh, which was really cool. And then, you know, it's funny, like we're, we're talking about all these, Darby Allen was in there like giving his all and just like doing what he does best, being death-defying and just, you know, falling all over the place and, and murdering folk. And yeah, it's just a, a perfect smorgasbord of, of different, guys and different styles and just really 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 fun and again another standout match on the evening yeah it was also the first time the bucks were in there with darby as well so a lot of first time right too uh interactions in in this match and so i'm really hoping we're going to get darby and sting versus the bucks uh, as a defense before we get to the the ftr trilogy i think that could be um a lot of fun and yeah this whole match is just a, a ton of fun and Hikaleo took the you know the coffin drop on the on the outside there, earned his paycheck for the night. Uh, but yeah, it's a really fun match with a lot of really fun and cool spots, especially highlighting uh, Sting. So we move on to the next match. We have the AEW Women's World Title match. The champion Thunder Road Thunder Rosa she retains the title by defeating Tony Storm in ten minutes to forty two seconds. Yeah, I liked this match a lot. Um... You know, if there if there was any particular match that sort of was the linchpin between the earlier undercard and then, you know, the big singles matches that kind of came up later, this was sort of that match. It was kind of a different tone, different style and pace from what we we'd gotten in all those, you know, tags and multi-man matches on the undercard. And um, I thought they went out there, I thought they had a really good performance really 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 good and i mean normally i'm a little bit critical of some of the the women's matches especially in aew specifically uh and you know what like i haven't been a huge fan of thunder rosa from a character standpoint i think she's great but you know i think a lot of a lot of the time i think her work gets overrated to be honest uh there's only a a handful of matches that i would classify as being like really on the level and so she's kind of had an added uh, weight since she won the title to kind of be the figurehead and, and the face of the division. And they really set it up beautifully by having Tony Storm just kind of go through all these different girls in very, very dominant fashion, even beating Britt Baker recently, you know, cleanly, kind of set up this very worthy challenger story. And they went out there, and I thought that they had a great match. Um, now, I will say this. I still think that for the main card, this is the low point of the show. But we're talking about a three and a half to three and three quarters low point, which is pretty awesome when you're talking about how great this match was. The crowd was very hot for the match as well. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, bathroom break time. Oh, LOL. The girls are out here. No, they went out there. And they like they were hitting each other fucking hard. We also joked about like this being you know, because it's the Forbidden Door. Both these are AEW talents, but like Thunder Rosa kind of came up in to- uh, Tokyo Joshi Pro, and then you got like Tony Storm, who's like a you know quasi Gaijin legend from Stardom. So like we were kind of joking that this is really 
TJPW versus stardom here. But um, these girls went out there. They worked really, really hard. They told a compelling match. They had some really great near falls towards the end. And I thought that this match did a lot. Probably, this is probably the most beneficial match to solidify Thunder Rosa as like the top champion in this company because up till now, I don't know that I've been as um, convinced in any of her other title defenses up to this point, but this was like the one. Also, she survived that thump in the that running thump in the corner. <laughs> Yo, Tony is fucking. They they really do need to think about maybe not doing that move or or something because she's knocking the shit out of girls. Like she, every show she's on, the hardest bump, the hardest strike is her throwing her ass at people <laughs> in the corner. Like bar none. I, like someone's gonna get fucking knocked out. That's how hard. Like. It's like football esque. It's like a knockout punch. <laughs> so crazy. So Thunder has had some rough matches in the last month or so, and uh, I was like, okay, you got Tony Storm, and if you can't have a good match with Tony Storm, you know it's time to hang it up because she's amazing. And uh, I was a huge Tony Storm fan before she joined uh, WWE, and you know she was really good in the WWE. I'm not taking. I'm not. In, didn't think she got worse, but now that she's back you know, outside of there and way able to work the way she is, you just see Tony Storm coming back. I've mentioned that on the show. You just see that side of her. And again, this was another feather in the hat. Her 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 and Thunder put together a really solid, hard hitting, good wrestling match. This was just a wrestling match. Two people just trying to win. Um I, I loved, you know, they kind of played it like the last few matches were. She was ahead a lot of the match before Thunder just overcame her. And yeah, I did love uh, I don't that she hit Dustin's finisher as they yeah, have been fi- playing final up. Final Reckoning, with, yeah. It, it, they hit the Final Reckoning. They have been playing up a lot of the mentor-mentee relationship between Thunder Rosa and Dustin Rhodes. I don't know if they're going further with that as far as AEW, but her using that move to, you know, you know, was kind of a great uh, homage to Dustin. And I did not think that's how the match was going to end. When she hit that move, I was waiting on Tony Storm to kick out. And then the match was over. And But I thought, great challenge for Tony Storm. Uh, rarely, uh, rarely if ever in AEW, does the, you know, the new people come right in and win. So kind of figured it might not be. But when they announced Thunder was going over to Tokyo Joshi Pro, I was like, maybe they go with Tony Storm while she's over there. Mm-hmm. They kept it on Thunder, which is great because as much as I love Thunder Rosa, she's one of my favorite uh, women wrestlers in AEW. She definitely feels like the champion that's not the star level as the other people. She's not on that same level as Britt or Jade right now. Maybe her going away for a while working in Tokyo Joe. Uh, Tokyo Joshi Pro, you always get that big kind of, hey, we missed you while you were gone reaction when she comes back. Maybe that that can help get her to the same level as the other two people. Of course, a big thing with her, you know, the promos got to improve or they need to get her like a mouthpiece. Maybe that might be the mentor mentee with Dustin. Maybe he might start cutting her promos for her. But yeah, really enjoyed this match. Uh, looking forward to Thunder uh, going over to Japan and what's going on with Tony Storm in the future. Yeah, this was a really good, hard-hitting match. You know, we were talking to the theater, like, you know, maybe they, like, left the band, quote-unquote, on on them, like, not hitting each other hard. 
Because I feel like that's the one thing that's been really missing from the women's matches. Like the women have just right. not been laying it in and making their strikes look really good. And when some of these women get out of AEW, like for example, Hikaru Shida, when she went mm-hmm. back to Japan, she was hitting hard and having these hard striking matches. But when she's in AEW, you really don't see that. So it's almost like there's this like unspoken mandate that the women shouldn't hit each other hard in AEW. And they kind of threw that out the window with this match. He's got these girls were laying in their strikes. Uh, everything looked really good. Um, I love Tony kicking out of the Fire Thunder Driver, which led to her, like you mentioned, Floyd hitting Dustin's finisher, the, the final reckoning. Um, so yeah, really hard hitting, good match. And I think, you know, they should let the women do more matches like this where they're kind of laying it in or maybe have people kind of teach them how to, how to lay it in, hit, hit each other in hard and safe places and to make the matches look more physical and uh, more entertaining. And I absolutely agree with you guys on, you know, Thunder's uh, promos. You know, you, you mentioned Britt and Jade. Well, you know, Britt and Jade, those two are definitely not, you know, super great workers, but they have the the great promo ability. They have the, the star presence and they kind of pop off the screen and so I'll say I think Thunder has a great look and I think she does have that presence. But, yeah, that 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 promo ability and connecting with the fans, I think, is missing right now. And that's why she's kind of gets lost in the shuffle, maybe, and has not come across as a big of a star as maybe a Britt Baker or, or Jade Cargill. So hopefully they kind of can work on that and get her in some more intriguing rivalries to kind of help her get over to the level as uh, Britt was. Yeah, totally agree, and I definitely uh, think that the physicality of them, even though I was a little, <laughs> um, you know, critical of that uh, that bump in the corner, aside from that, everything else that they did here is, like, within the, the realm of possibility of what I think should be happening in the women's matches, you know. Um, we see a lot of, like, strong physical action with the men, and I think, you know, I am a feminist at heart. I believe in equality. I think these girls should be hitting each other fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, the match was really good. And I I, I definitely want to see them wrestle again. And I'd like to see, you know, more of this from the rest of the roster for sure. Yeah. Also, we got the rare and elusive New Japan women's match on this evening. Yeah. So uh, next up, we had the IWGP United States heavyweight title match. The champion, Will Ospreay, retains and defeats Orange Cassidy 16 minutes and 43 seconds. And boy, oh boy, what a banger this match was. Yeah, we got a promo earlier in the evening. There was a few promos that we kind of just skipped over, but one that was noteworthy was Juice Robinson and... uh, uh, Jay White coming out earlier in the night backstage and kind of discussing, you know, the status of the IWGP United States title and how, you know, even though Osprey's the champion, you know, basically Jay or um, Juice is not recognizing that he never lost the belt. He's holding on to the belt and, you know, kind of alluding to there needing to be some sort of reconciliation between the title and the belt later on down the road. So, and he, he also alluded that he'd be watching this match, which he was up in the stands with other, you know, bull club cronies. I do think it's funny. How about this? The one other truly major, um, new Japan singles title was not on this show at all. 
<laughs> well, I, I mean, Ju- Juice had it. He was in backstage. No, 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 no. <laughs> no Carl Anderson, no Never title. Mm. That's kind of funny. But, um, yeah, so we, we got Juice and the Bull Club cronies watching from, uh, you know, up high. And, yeah, this match, man, this was easily, easily the match of the night. And, I mean, it was everything that you probably would have expected from Will Ospreay and Orange Cassidy initially, like a lot of, um, I don't want to call shenanigans because it wasn't quite that, but it's the Orange Cassidy-isms, you know, him wrestling with his hands in this pocket and, you know, all that shtick. But the one thing I noticed, right, and I said this to you guys, I, I was like, he's not wearing the glasses. Like when the match started, he took the glasses off and gave it to the referee and the referee put it in the corner. And I was like, I think that's a sign that he's not even like, you know, I know a lot of fans like to add, like, try to read too much into what's going on and, like, give their own interpretation. But I can't remember any singles matches where this dude didn't start off with the glasses or keep them in the pocket to put on after, like, a short stanza. Those glasses never made uh, an appearance in the match whatsoever. That kind of told me, like, oh, he's taking this seriously. And he absolutely did. Now, I don't recall exactly when the match went from this is fun, this is entertaining, this is good to like, oh my god, this is like out of this world good. But it just it just happened like it just I don't know when it happened, but it just <laughs> happened. Suddenly like I was like, oh, we're watching like a classic and then it's like, oh, we're watching the best Orange Cassidy match of his entire career right now. And it was just so phenomenal. Um the when he hit um, Osprey with the beach break and got that near fall for like I thought he might have won it. Um, there was the point where Osprey was going to hit him with the high angle um, uh, power bomb and Orange Cassidy turned it into a Hurricane Rana and like rolled him up and I was like, oh, this, the near falls were so close. Like this is this is the one match. If you didn't see the show, you got to see this match. I mean. I think everyone's expectations were fairly high considering what we'd seen with Orange Cassidy and say Pack in the past and knowing the reputation of Will Ospreay. But like, number one, this like put Orange Cassidy over the top as like a big time performer. When he wants to turn on, he can turn on. The other thing too is like, this is par for the course when it comes to Will Ospreay. But I think there's a lot of fans who were watching the show that don't know the guy. They just heard the name. They've heard the reputation. And, like, he was like, I'm going to show you guys why I'm the best wrestler in the world today. And that's exactly what he did. Um, I don't know, four and three quarters, just fucking awesome. Well, I went the full five. Uh, it was, I thought this, this is like one of, I don't, I wouldn't say it's my match of the year, but I don't know. I, I would have to go back and look at what I list. There's a great show on social suplex called AEW Match Guide, and, the calendar for next year just reset. So I've been trying to keep my matches in order so I can know, oh, this is one without a doubt uh, from the cutoff. This um, Orange Cassidy just, they just came out so motivated. And like you said, it wasn't that moment that, that you was like, oh, we're watching this match. It just gradually happened. It just got better and better and better. And then they would top the next spot. Then they, it, then they do they do a chain maneuver into the next move. And it was just like, this is so good. And orange Cassidy basically stayed in character, yeah. which 
that's another impressive thing. It's that it's this very, he still had his hands in his pocket. All the nip ups he does. This man is just oh, has a core that must be on another level. How he can do that with his hands in his pockets and work with his hands in his pockets. And Will Ospreay, generational talent. I, I mean, I can't say enough good words about him. He's one of those people that he might not be my favorite wrestler, but he's never had a match I didn't just like like and come away saying, "Oh my God, that's Will Ospreay. That's Will freaking Ospreay." And it's just. When this with Orange Cassidy, I just felt like before the match, uh, I posted on I posted on the AT Elite Pod site that I thought it was going to be the match to steal the show. And the reason being is Orange Cassidy gets a lot of crap, but you look across and there's Will Ospreay. And Will Ospreay is going to bring something out, but I was like, Orange Cassidy has been a wrestler forever. He's going to want to show on a big stage who he is and Anyone that thought this man can't wrestle or that he's a joke or he's bad for wrestling, I, I put this match in front of you, and then I stick up the same middle finger Will Ospreay pulled out of Orange Cassidy's pocket. <laughs> it was an amazing match. Again, five stars. Great. Yeah, this match, absolutely incredible. Um, I was a coward. I went 4.75, but... Absolutely, it's it blow away matchup. You know, these guys both had a chip on their shoulder. There was comments all the last two weeks of people, oh man, Osprey's facing Cassidy. I wish that he could be in there with somebody else. Why isn't he facing, you know, somebody higher in the AW, uh, main eventer in AW? You know, we had some of those same sentiments. Like we, we wouldn't have chose Orange Cassidy for Osprey. But then they went out here and had this, this blow away, incredible matchup. And like you guys mentioned, like, yeah, Cassidy kind of stayed and gimmick doing the pocket stuff, uh, but it really just all worked out. You had um, Osprey; he got Cassidy in a abdominal stretch at one point and put his hand in, in uh, Cassidy's uh, pocket. And there was a great spot where Cassidy bashed Osprey's head into the turnbuckle camera that was there. And so you just saw they switched to that camera, and you just saw like Osprey's head like boom, smashing into that camera. Um, and then just so many great near falls, I think, really elevated this. You had Osprey doing the hidden blade, which is his secondary finisher. He does beat people like lower with right. the, with the hidden blade, and so he hit the hidden blade. Oh, that could be it! But uh, Cassidy kicks out, like you mentioned, Josh. He hits uh, Cassidy hits the the beach break, which is one of his finishers, and Osprey kicked out of that. And then there was just so many great near falls towards the end. You had uh, Aussie Open uh, that was out there with Osprey, and Cassidy did a cool flip. To wipe those guys out, and then it's a really good um, back and forth closing sequence sequence to the end there, until Osprey once again hits the hidden blade again and hits the Stormbreaker to get the win. Just absolutely incredible finish, great counters, great near falls, um, just really great energy here. Um, and then that was an eight. We, we got a great you know match of the year contender, and they followed up with a great angle. Uh, after the match, Aussie Open comes in and they're beating down Orange Cassidy. Then Rocky and Trent come in. And they make they try to make a save, and but then they get laid out by Osprey and Aussie Open. And then the slow piano music hits. Da-da-da-da. And then Katsuyori Shibata comes storming out of the stage, makes his way down to the ring, and he's just crowds losing their mind. Shibata's going on. He takes out. Uh, Davis on the stage takes out Kyle Fletcher then him and Osprey are, are mixing it up there in the ring um, and yeah he you know does a choke does a PK 
just epic crowds losing their mind. Shibata looks great. He's jacked and doing all these spots. And then Orange Cassidy uh, gets sunglasses, puts it on uh, Shibata, and gives him the thumbs up. And overall, it's an awesome uh, angle here. Now, Jeremy, those are not uh, piano keys. Those are guitar strings. Piano, guitar, same thing for me. They're not the same at all. <laughs> so totally different instruments. No, but um, yeah. Once once we heard the da da da, I went <gasps> like literally like bro. I freaked out like in the theaters. Like freaked out. Actually, that should tell you. This should tell you how good the show is. I haven't really been feeling the best the past couple days. So I kind of taken some time off from the gym. But you know, I'm a big believer in Fitbit. I got 52 zone minutes <laughs> from watching <laughs> from watching the forbidden door in the theater like after we left i was like that's weird i got like 52 zone minutes and then like i did that I, I went and looked back and it was like yeah from uh this from this hour to this hour you were at this elevated of a heart rate and i was like oh my god i was so like into the show that like i literally was burning extra calories but uh <laughs> your heart rate was elevated uh Elevated to the sky. <laughs> there was a moment in the match where uh earlier Osprey had done his Kawada kicks and like the match is going, 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 going. We're hitting like all the strides, and then uh Orange Cassidy gets him in the position for the uh for his own Kawada kicks, and like right in the midst of the the biggest heat of the match, he goes, weak kick, weak kick, <laughs> weak kick, weak kick, and like like Osprey just looks so incensed that he's just getting more and he like starts like slowly rising up. He's so angry because this guy is just giving him like these weak ass kicks in the middle of like we're right in the heart of the of like the best part of the match. And then he like goes to rear up and like fucking and then Orange Cassie's like, I'm not playing. Bam, just like fucking <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you need to see this. Yeah, and bl- then and then the post match. match really put it over. It's awesome. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sending in my ballot right now. Will Ospreay is the wrestler of the year. Uh, oh, oh, oh! This isn't even. This is like one of the best matches of Orange Cassidy's career. This isn't even like the best match of Will Ospreay's year. It's not even close to the best match of his of his year. Much, you know what I mean? Much less like this wouldn't even rank in the top ten matches of Will Ospreay's career. Yeah. That's how good this guy is. When when it comes time to making the you know the twenty twenty two match ballots, um, you know for overall when you're doing your POW ballots, like there's gonna be a lot of Osprey in that top ten because he's been having just another blow away incredible year, and I know people think he's an idiot; they don't like stuff he's said or stuff that he m- might have been alleged to do. And I know he told Josh to f off in New Orleans, but <laughs> this guy is the best professional wrestling professional wrestler on God's green earth today. And he's having this, this blow away, incredible year, new Japan, AW, GCW, wherever rev pro, wherever he's at, he's having these awesome, incredible matchups. And again, he's a guy that I know he's, you know, main new Japan guy, but if you can capitalize on him being on AW TV to help the exposure of new Japan and just get some more momentum behind him, I think that would be great. And, yeah, great match, great there's segment. A, there's a few people that would disagree with you on that best wrestler in the world, but you know, Kenny Okada. <laughs> but I'd like to see him figure it out. Yeah, 
y- y'all y'all can have a little match and do a little series between y'all three. Danielson, you know. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, just Shuri. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely epic matchup there. Uh, great stuff, great angle. Yeah, when Shapada came out, I I went crazy. I never I never thought we were going to see him on the show. Uh, he was a he was probably what I would say was my first favorite New Japan wrestler, and I just thought he was really just such an intimidating figure, and everything he did just looked so real and so physical, and it was just like so when he uh, when they've had him come back a few times, and it's just been like I've always just got this like giddy feeling. So when his music, and I'm just like. I'm like a little in you know, like a stung shock when I see him at first, because I was like that, like you gave me all the dream scenarios on the show. I never even included him. And the fact that we got him was just amazing. And yeah, such a great moment, such a huge pop, you know, all those people, all those Americans that weren't going to understand these <laughs> Japanese guys. <laughs> they seemed to get it when Shibata came out. I don't know why. Well, in all fairness, I do think that this particular Chicago crowd is a little different than, like, you know, your average at-home TV viewer. But, yes, I, I do agree. I think that they've underestimated how familiar the audience might potentially be with uh, some of these stars. And, yeah. you know, it was uh, – one last thing before we move on. It was really great to have a surprise like this, and we're going to talk about another surprise in a moment because there were other guys that people were thinking, like, maybe they'll – come out even if they're not on the show like Kenny Omega or different individuals like that and we didn't get some of those surprises so to get like a uh, or night or whatever it, it, we, getting a cool tease with Shibata here was pretty awesome yeah one last thing too this was also kind of a, a payoff for those who yeah. are paying attention to New Japan Strong when Osprey was, was first on Strong coming back from his injury last year he was feuding with the LA Dojo boys, and he was calling them out and talking all this crap about Shibata, um, and so there's some some heat there, and obviously with Shibata not being able to have a full-on match, also they couldn't do a match, so Osprey faced all the LA Dojo guys, so this is kind of a payoff for all the stuff that Osprey was saying about Shibata, and so Shibata got his revenge here. Yeah, and I mean, I wonder if they'll do something else to follow up on it down the line. We'll, we'll wait and see, I guess. Yeah. So then following that, like you mentioned, we had the other surprise of the night with the mystery opponent versus Zach Sabre Jr. Brian Danielson, like we talked about, um, really put this guy over whose mystery opponent was going to be uh, a great technical wrestler, somebody who could replace him. Um, and it ended up being a name that was pretty heavily rumored and people heavily speculated on the former Cesaro, Claudio Castagnoli, Gets a big pop from the crowd with probably the best entrance music he's had in his career and looking jack in great shape. And this led to another uh, great matchup between him and Zack Sabre Jr. And, you know, they were following that great Osprey matchup, that great Shibata angle. And so, how do you get the fan attention? Boom, it started off with his old finisher, the, the neutralizer. Hits them with that, and it seemed like Sabre was going to get squashed. Uh, but luckily, Sabre kicked out, and then they went on to have uh, a really great matchup. Yeah, when that match, well, first off, we didn't know who it was going to be, and there's so much speculation. And I, I racked my brain and come up with so many different um, scenarios because 
luckily I didn't do it over the air because we didn't even find out, you know, about the news of Danielson being out until after we recorded last week. But uh, in my heart of hearts, I really hoped and believed it might be Claudio. And when it was, and like, I was like in the theater, I was like, it's Claudio, it's Claudio, it's Claudio. And like, one of the guys near us is like, who's Claudio? (laughs) (laughs) And then when it was him, I was like, oh, like, you know, I was freaking out. And that kid was like, that's Cesaro. (laughs) 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 But um, to see him come out with, you know, a new look, new gear. And then it was like, oh my, then like the realization like crept in. It was like, we're about to see Claudio Castagnoli wrestle Zack Sabre Jr. in, you know, like that's incredible. Which is a match that we booked, I think in the first social suplex fantasy draft, we we booked a Cesaro versus Sabre matchup. I'm pretty sure we have. We did. Yeah. So yeah, this was something that was really, really exciting. And then the match, uh, I thought it, it lived up to the hype. This is probably like the third best match of the night. And on a show that's stacked full, you know, chock full of, you know, tons of star ratings. I mean, that's a really, really, really high watermark. I thought these guys for a first time, you know, match like this, they really delivered on a super high level. Um, I was sort of surprised, I guess that Zach lost. Not because, I mean, in the short term, it does make sense. You know, you bring a guy in sometimes when you bring someone in new on a, on a fresh, hot, like, moment like that, you want to give them, you know, the momentum and have them, you know, show up with the win. So I do get that. Plus, he is going to be aligned with Blackpool Combat Club and is going to be competing in blood and guts. So, you know, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to come in with a loss, that being said, there was a part of me that was like, the big money here long term is in a potential Zack Sabre Jr. Brian Danielson match. And this is the first time you're really like cluing in a segment of the audience to Zach. I kind of felt like maybe they didn't want to have Zach take that loss, especially going into a G1 and potentially teasing the long term feud with Brian. But um, that's not really the way they're going. I think that they kind of felt like Zach could handle the loss a little better at this point right now than um, Claudio could, which, you know, it makes sense, but the match was just awesome. And it was, um, I did get, Oh, but I, I want to say I got scared when they started off, like just boom, 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 hot like that to kind of like get you out of thinking of the previous match. But I, I didn't see it that way. I thought that they were going <laughs> to, I thought they were going to job Zack Sabre Jr. In like a matter of moments. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> Luckily, that's not what happened. But the, just an outstanding match. Another high recommendation. Just incredible. Um, Floyd, what was it like live in the audience when Claudio made his entrance? I mean, what, so, how did you react? So we all, like, we jumped up. We were very excited. And then Cesaro. So did you hear? I don't know. You may not heard it, but that's it. That's what everybody was chanting. Cesaro. No one explained to Claudio and the whole night. It was, um, and he came out and he did the thing. And this dude is, I feel like somehow he got in better shape from WWE. This dude is like, just looks like he sculpted like superhero. The he comes, Yeah. He's like, <laughs> he, this dude is what Jason Statham wants to be when he grows up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he comes out and then he hits the two moves and like everybody pops up. They had me. I was like, oh, it's three. 
And I was like, because, you know, Zach Sabre Jr. would be like, I didn't know who I was facing, you know. I couldn't get prepared or whatever. But, no, they went on and had a really solid match. I mean, mean, you have Zach Sabre Jr., a great wrestler, Cesaro, a great wrestler. There's no way they were going to have a bad match. They had an amazing match. But that moment when he hit it, it it was like, oh, Oh, okay, it's not over, but yeah, yeah. Watch- I, thought, I thought it was getting yeah. squashed. <laughs> yes, and I, was I got just, nervous. It was believable. Yes, very believable. Yeah, because just you know, and with the black uh, Blackpool Combat Club, what their thing is is they attack as soon as the bell rings. Mm-hmm. So it went right mm-hmm. into what the Blackpool Combat Club has been doing since they've gotten together. It was just kind of this perfect thing. ZSJ, you know, he puts on his uh, symphony of moves. He's just moving around, twisting each uh, body, uh, each body part. And I was just like, it's it's funny. I love that he's in Japan because I think the crowd's patient enough to really understand what he does. Uh, you know, American crowds at times cannot be, you know, as patient. But this match, they kept it exciting. They kept it moving. A lot still did his mat thing and and like I said, I would like would like the crowd to see more of his personality, but he's doing his thing. And then they end the match. I mean, did he hit the swing? He hit the swing, right? At least he, a little. He, he did because Saber worked on his arm throughout arm, the match. Yeah, yeah. And so he only got five rotations on the swing, which the fans are disappointed with. Which he would make up at the end of the show. Uh, but yeah, he did all that, and then he hit. He pulled out his old indie Ring of Honor finisher, the Ricola. Bomb and just drop Saber with that. That was dope. Yes, I did not know that was his finisher. I was like, did he just lose to a powerbomb? Cool. What? I don't know what just happened. <laughs> and uh, but no, it was a really good match. He didn't take away from it at all. But now that I know, I know I was educated right here as far as that was his finisher on the indie, so it makes more sense. Well, but that's, uh, yeah. that's why um, the initial thing was so believable, but it was because he used the, uh, what's it called, neutralizer? Yeah, yeah, the gotcha neutralizer. And that's his finish in WWE, so it was like, oh, shit, did he just fucking... <laughs> <laughs> but apparently that's probably not going to be his, like, it's probably going to be treated like... Uh, secondary. Like, when, like a secondary move, like when Jericho hits, like, the code breaker. Right. So, yeah, looks like he's going back with, with the Ricola bomb, bomb and... Yeah, this had a really good matchup here with Saber working on the arm and tying him up, and Cesaro just being freaky strong and uh, throwing Saber around. And we saw a similar trope that Saber falls in Japan, where he tries to strike with guys who are stronger or better strikers than him, and so he's trying to throw right. European uppercuts. And uh, our Claudio's like, "Okay, bam! You, here's- picked, you picked the wrong one, bud. <laughs> yes." You're going to yeah. jail now. Hit him with the, you're going to jail now. I love it. <laughs> what oh. was awesome, too, was um, Zach worked the arm the whole match, and then everyone's expecting the big swing to come. And like you mentioned, he could only get it, like, maybe for five rotations because his arm was compromised, which was, like, part of Zach's game plan. But they were saving it for a segment that would occur later in the night where the full payoff would come. So, like, it was kind of... Kind of brilliant how they did that. Yeah, definitely good stuff. So, so uh, moving on from that matchup, we'll go to the semi-main event of the evening for the IWGP World Heavyweight title. Up for grabs in a four-way match, Switchblade Jay White retains and defends against Adam Cole, Hangman Page, and the Rainmaker, Kazuchika Okada. 
really, really good match. Um, I can't say for sure if this is uh, the first ever. I mean, I wish I would have done the research before I came on here, but uh, I can't recall too many times the IWGP title. Well, actually, this isn't even the same title, so it's not really the same thing at all. But historically, the IWGP title was very rarely ever defended in, say, like, triple threats, and I don't think it was ever defended in a four-way. This For this new title, it's definitely the first four-way they've ever had for the belt. So that's kind of a, a, a cool, nifty little factoid. Um, as far as the match itself, I mean, the crowd was hot. Everybody got really great entrances. You know, everybody came off looking like stars. Um, and then the match started and it was really, really, really good. I mean, a lot of action, a lot of like, um, you know, just different cool interactions all throughout the match. Obviously there's the story kind of continuing where it's like Adam Cole and like the elite and undisputed, they're sort of aligned, you know, quasi aligned with the bullet club. And so him and Jay white, they have an uneasy alliance, but, you know, that kind of came apart throughout the, the course of the match. And, um, you know, we got to see every single one of these guys mix it up. The one issue is towards the tail end of the match, there was some sort of injury that was suffered by Adam Cole. I don't know what it was specifically. Uh, maybe we have more information now. Last I heard, it was speculated heavily that it might have been a concussion. I saw other people speculating that maybe uh, Adam Cole's shoulder had popped out at one of the segments of the match. Hard to say, but the match actually ended somewhat abruptly. Like uh, Adam Cole was supposed to, it looked like he was going to get Rainmaker and he spun out of it and found the ground. And then Jay White comes in, hits Okada with the, uh, Sling blade, says move. Blade runner, the blade, the blade runner, and then um, and then he just covers Adam Cole, and Adam Cole like almost tries to kick out, but like he hadn't gotten hit with anything, and he's just on the ground, and it was very wonky and kind of strange. And this was this image of this finish was so indelible that it kind of almost made me forget a lot of the action that had been admittedly very good, but it kind of took my attention off all that to where I don't remember a, a whole lot about the specifics of the match. I just remember it being very good, and then this finish happened, and it kind of deflated a little bit, and it was confusing. So it was like, why did Adam Cole get pinned? He didn't get hit with anything. I think there was a finish. And even Tony Khan during the um, media presser scrum, he admitted that they were surprised by the finish themselves because uh, something had gone awry, and it, it, they they went under their time a little bit, so... Yeah, that was definitely uh, an awkward finish. How, how did the crowd react to that, Floyd? The crowd kind of groaned. They thought it was a mistake. They actually, uh, the few people around me uh, th- were like, oh, I think Adam Cole's supposed to kick out and just botched it. And then someone's like, I think he's hurt. There was a lot of speculation going around uh, about what it was going to be. But during the match, I, I wanted to say it for the beginning of the match that Okada like his energy and everything about him uh, makes me feel like, like, and I'm not talking about how he works in the ring. I'm just talking about his energy and his star power felt like John Cena, like Mm -hmm. the crowd exploded when that coin dropped, like exploded, like 
every person on their feet. This was a big moment that was going to happen. And I don't know if Okada ever works like, you know, AEW, like, you know, Dynamite and all that stuff. But I will say, keep this man special. It's just, it's a different feeling when he's in the building. It's like, I've only seen him wrestle a few times, but every time, no matter who's on the show, he is clearly the biggest star on the show. And it just felt like that in that moment. I was just like, oh yeah, definitely pop of the night. It was just like, it was just this huge, just moment of energy, just anticipating the coin drop uh, match was <clears throat> match was great. I mean, you have four, four of the more best wrestlers in the world. I know some people might not agree with that or not like that about switchblade, but he plays everything about him plays into who his character is. You know what I mean? He's like one of the most appropriate, like for how he moves and how he does everything, everything goes into who his character is. I feel like it's a lot like Orange Cassidy. It's like all built around him just being a basically a piece of shit. You know, and it's like, <laughs> it's like everything he does is to take the moment away. He doesn't want you to pop. Okada's about to hit the rainmaker. I'm just going to roll out the ring. He's on us to take every moment away from you. He wants to take the air out of the match. He doesn't want you to enjoy his matches. He wants you to hate him. And I love that about it. So when uh, Adam Cole uh, beat him to the punch and turned on him first, that was just like this monster pop moment because you wanted to see someone take Jay White down a notch. And Adam Cole's like, well, I'm a bigger piece of shit than you. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's this like, and every time Hangman looked like he was setting up for the buckshot, and it, especially was on Jay White, he just dropped down, rolled out the ring, just took all the energy out of it. Uh, you know, Okada was like building to that Rainmaker. Everybody wanted to see it, and it was just oh, it was such a great moment. I, I mean, this match was like, it's a fatal four-way, and I think this is what people uh, lose, that you can do matches where there is a clear winner, and nobody actually lose like loses or looks bad. In this match, no one looked bad. I mean, the Adam Cole thing at the end, you know, it, it's wrestling, shit happens, but up until that moment, everybody had their shine moment. Yeah, I love the point that you brought up about Jay White. You know, at the beginning of the match, the crowd it's like losing their mind, getting hyped up, waiting for the bell to ring, and Jay is like uncharacteristically like Getting the, like waving to the crowd, trying to get the crowd popped, pop, popped up, and you know, getting cheers from the crowd, and then the bell rings, and this immediately rolls out the ring, and you're like, oh my gosh, like you're a douche. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Jay is so great with his character and it's the way that he carries himself in the ring, and like like you mentioned, like he's another guy that's kind of always in character, and everything he does really just kind of flows of who he is, and. I'm a Jay White guy. I like Jay White a lot, and I thought he was uh, great in this matchup. And I love the interactions with uh, Hangman and Okada in this matchup. I think there's definitely a, a big matchup in the future that they can do with those guys as a singles match. And like you mentioned before, I thought everybody looked good in this match. I'll see Sands, uh, the concussion finish um, botch at the end. Everything looked good. They had a, you know, it was structured like a basic four way where you have, you know, two guys in and then two guys out and then. Everybody kind of coming in and hitting big moves, and yeah, it was structured really well, and it was pretty much the outcome that most people predicted with Adam Cole being pinned by Jay White, but uh, it was still a very, very good matchup. 
Yeah, the the one funny thing is all of the speculation coming from um, Dave kind of like just started like a storm this past week when he was like, maybe they should put the belt on Cowboy or on Hangman. It's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That that just like was the most far-fetched idea. Literally. uh, Well, no, not literally, because I mean, I think Adam Cole winning would have been even more far-fetched because he had less of a foothold in the Japanese market than Hangman did. Hangman at least was getting over there when he was there. But, you know, it's like, it, it is just such a crazy idea that, like, and a lot of people were, you know, arguing and speculating all week. And, like, it felt like there was just as many fireworks online about the discourse of, of that comment as there was in the ring during this match itself. Um, I will, I'll say this, though. Long term, well, not long term, but just, like, on, over the course of this show, I think this is probably, like, what... One of probably after the women's match, the next lowest for me rated match of the night, which might be a little bit of a disappointment considering it's an IWGP world title match. But again, we're talking about a show that's chock full of classics. It was still like, again, I think three and three quarters, very, very, very good. Um, and, you know, it, it, it sort of had to be that happy medium to get all of these guys on the show you know, and get them, um, you know, all to perform. The only thing that went awry was whatever that injury was. It kind of uh, robbed us a little bit of whatever that uh, closing sequence probably would have been, which probably was going to be really cool. But uh, aside from that, the match was great, you know. Um, And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had a question here from uh, Let's Commission 7252. So with the Cole with Cole being injured in the ending of the IWGP World Title match, do you guys think the tag team match should have been the right choice? Um, no, no, not at all. Because, I mean, you know, what, what, what would it have been? Uh, Okada and... Hangman against Cole and Jay? No, I mean, it just... There's a lot that was going against this show. Going, I mean, it's easy to kind of forget this after the fact. You know what I mean? Because luckily it sounds like the pay-per-view numbers, the early indicators seem to indicate that they did really well. You know, they, they sold this the second largest audience they've ever had. But the booking of the show was kind of atrocious. The, the build was all over the place. There were so many cancellations and things that were in flux and just uh, last minute changes where people were calling this a cursed show. The last thing that this show needed was to not have the IWGP world title on in a prominent role during, during the show itself. That would have made it even harder for them to do the kind of business that, that they were hoping to do. So absolutely not. I mean, Granted, maybe there is a time and place where they could have done a tag team match like that, but not not on a first time, you know, crossover show like this. That wouldn't have been the right call at all. Yeah, completely agree. Everything Josh just said, just stamp Floyd's name on it. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, not having the IWGP Heavyweight Title on the flagship AEW New Japan show, you you just can't do it. I mean, drop Adam Cole, make it a three way. But you don't you don't make it a tag match. 
Right. I don't think a tag match really would have made a difference. I mean, if you get con- concussed, you get concussed. I mean, it could have happened in the tag match, and then then what do you do? It would have been the same thing. Like, it would have been a weird finish, and Cole would have got pinned somehow, and it would still have been a, a clunky, weird finish uh, if he got hurt in a tag match. Yeah, Cole still needed to be the guy taking the fall regardless. <laughs> yeah, because Jay White's not, it's not eating the pin, and then... Neither is Hangman or Okada. Cole was the clear pin eater from day one in this uh, scenario. So either way, he's getting pinned, and it would have still it would have been awkward either way. So now let's move on to the main event of the show. We had the interim AEW World Title match, and we have a new interim AEW World Champion, the Death Rider, John Moxley, defeating the Ace Hiroshi Tanahashi. To become the interim AEW world champion. What'd you guys think about this one? The word interim actually means fake. So he is the fake AEW world champion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just playing. But um I thought that this match um I thought it was exactly what I expected it to be, for better or for worse. Um two things that I was really counting on. I was counting on John Moxley to bleed, which he did copiously, you know, a lot. And then I expected, and a lot of people disagreed with me on this and it didn't deter completely from the match, but I expected Tanahashi to come in looking banged up. I just, I've had this hunch. I've been watching it. He's my favorite new Japan guy. So I watch him very carefully and closely and I've noticed that he is missing a step. The only time this year that he has looked like himself is in that one Ishii match at Dantaku. And aside from that, he's just been noticeably in pain and a bit slower and kind of sluggish. His body doesn't look the same. And I, I think we, I know we've said this a million times, but I've never really been able, been willing to uh, put my stamp on it I think we have entered the official downside of uh, Tanahashi's like physical. I don't want to say prime because he's been out of his prime for a while, but I think we are getting to the point where his body is starting to fail, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, I, it does make me nervous for him going into the G1. Uh, then again, the format they have this year is a lot different. Maybe that will afford him more rest, but seven matches is seven matches. Regard seven big matches is still seven six six matches, matches right? Okay, six. My yeah. bad. But um, even with all of that, even with him still kind of looking hurt, the reaction to these two guys getting in the ring was just out of this world. I mean, once they came in, I, the the even though the crowd had been up all night, it just felt like something shifted, and I was like, bro, this feels like. You know how WWE is always like big match feel. It actually felt like big match feel. Like I was like, oh my god! Like everything about this presentation is like top notch right now, and gives me the same kind of feelings I have when I'm watching like a world boxing, you know, title match or like a a, a UFC main event. And I was like, man, I, I'm really like on the edge of my seat here. And they went out there and they had a, a fantastic showing. And t- even though Tanahashi was working with those ailments, he was able to still utilize all of his gifts of working the crowd and 
and his charisma and his timing and you know everything to that he that he has at his disposal that was in full effect here and then uh john moxley has just been on a roll this year where it's like great performance after great performance after great performance time and time and time again whether it's in aw or outside of the company he's just rolling on all cylinders and um now i don't think this match itself was say the top blow away match of the evening or anything like that, but it still was like just incredible. And the blood I think really did help. There was a point. So Tanahashi hit him with a sling blade. He goes to the outside and I thought that he bladed at that point. And I was like, well, why would he blade there? Like nothing happened. Apparently they banged heads and that was a hard away cut. And that kind of even, esteems the match a little bit higher for me because I'm like, okay, that if it was hard way, that kind of explains why he was like bleeding so profusely. Yeah. And at that point, that's when like the intensity of the match really, really, really picked up. Um Tanahashi hit him with the what, the double high five flow and he kicked out of it, right? Yeah. That that's what really got me. I was like, that kind of gutted me because for a second I thought <laughs> he beat Tanahashi. But um these guys kind of knew their roles. John Moxley like understood very quickly as a pro, like I'm not going to be able to be the baby face over Tanahashi, even though in 99% of scenarios he would. So he started leaning into his heelish tendencies and it just worked really, really well. And the finish, like Tanahashi kicked out of a bunch of like onslaught moves. And then finally, Hit him with the Death Rider, the high angle Death Rider, and that's when you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but the crowd, the crowd was like wanting Tanahashi to win, which is something I did not expect whatsoever. Just that, awesome. was, that was my biggest shock of the night. It was like, oh, this crowd is going to be pro Moxley. Man, when they switched to Tanahashi halfway through the match, I, I mean, my jaw dropped. I was like, oh my god, this. I mean, Tana and course i i messaged rich like because uh, he's the ace and i'm like in that moment i understood what he meant you know what i mean some people are just so good that ricky the dragon steamboat even jeff hardy are so good at playing base uh baby faces that they can pretty much turn anyone to their side another way this the blackpool combat club works and moxley is advantage because they work vicious no matter what they can be working babyface. They can work heel. They're throwing elbows to your head right. the whole time. So him turning it on wasn't really against, you know, what he's been presenting for the last few months. Uh, the table spot, that that blew my mind. I was on TV that whole spot. I'm throwing in it. If you want to look at the replay, you see. This Bro, you're, you're on TV with AEW all the time, multiple times a year. What are you talking about? This <laughs> I, I was just saying this gorgeous face and that AEW hat was there. So make sure you check that out on the table spot. No, but it was um, it was just so intense. And when he started bleeding, I was like, I started believing Tanahashi was going to win because in my head when he started bleeding, I was like, okay, he gets him in the clover leaf. He passes out. Mm. You know, Moxley doesn't tap out. Tanahashi's the champ. And, you know, I wasn't really high on it at the beginning, but as we came kept going, I was like, okay, I would be okay with that. So, yeah, fantastic match. Really enjoyed it as far as 
it was the perfect piece to end the show. Yeah. Yeah, and I think going into it, we all kind of figured that John Moxley was going to be the one to win. But, I mean, like we said, it's the ace. It's Hiroshi Tanahashi. Like, like you mentioned before, there's this energy where you, you, you want to get behind him, and he did that. Like, he turned the biggest, you know, healthy baby face on the roster right now into a heel, and the crowd was 100%. Behind Tanahashi, uh, go ace, and uh, they're really behind him. And you know he fought from underneath, and then yeah, Moxley's bleeding all over the place. He did the high fly flow to the outside, and it seemed like he was having a little bit of trouble with the AEW turnbuckle or, t- or the ropes compared to the New Japan ropes, but uh, still was able to uh, get up there. And yeah, I thought he looked really good considering you know what Josh was saying with him looking. Pretty rough this year. I, I thought he had a, a good performance here. Moxley was on fire. I know Moxley really loves and respects the, the New Japan guys and has been a key uh, component in even this any kind of communications between AW New Japan in, kind yes. of the, in the early days when they were not talking and there, there was major heat there. Moxley was definitely one of those guys who was working both companies and that kind of been the, the, the in between. So. I think it was great that it all worked out that he got to main event this show and being there with Tanahashi, a match that we talked about, you know, it's was supposed to happen for a while now and it's, it's finally uh, happened here. And, yeah, it was a great matchup. Um, yeah, Mox hitting the, the Death Rider paradigm shift. And speaking of Death Rider, I, didn't think, I thought it was cool that since he is both AEW and New Japan, for his entrance, they started off with the New Japan uh, Death Rider theme and then blended it in into the AW Wild Thing theme. I thought that was a, a pretty cool touch there. Yeah, overall, uh, another great match, a great way to end the show. Um, and then after that, we had another angle. Um, obviously, as Moxie and Tanahashi seem to be embracing, we had the Jericho Appreciation Society uh, run out to attack them. And then uh, Blackpool Combat Club came out. And then we had a, kind of a a uh, big brawl and uh, Claudio runs out and uh, cleans house and we finally get the the big swing that people wanted where he, I think he went about like twenty rotations on um, Daddy Magic and you know ended the show with the Bay faces standing tall. Of course, there's long heat between Eddie Kingston and Claudio and so they kind of play that up as well. And now we know you know Blood and Guts six on six. Jericho team has the advantage, but it seems like with, with uh, Claudio on the uh, combat club team that they're going to have a real shot at winning. Well, a um, couple things I will say. Number one, um, this close to the show, that was a mistake. They shouldn't have done that. And I feel very strongly about that. Um, I understand the reason they did it because they spent the last few weeks really focusing um, out of necessity <laughs> on this particular pay-per-view, they felt like they needed to do stuff on this show to build to the big Wednesday show for blood and guts. I get that. But at the same time, I feel like when you have a crossover show like this first time ever, you're setting all these records, it's a historical thing. The last send off shouldn't feel like a Friday night rampage. And it felt very hokey and kind of low rent especially since we'd seen something very similar on Wednesday and Friday night on their television program as well. So I don't know that I felt that that was necessary um, as a send off, especially when you have like Tanahashi laying in the ring 
post-match, like, it just felt like, oh, wow, like, we're really, we've moved on already. Like, it, you know, we don't even get to bask in the glory of the show for even a second. Like, it's done. <laughs> so that, that, that was the one big thing that I felt like was a, probably not good about the show, uh, personally. Another thing, fans, especially AEW fans, if you're going to encourage the big swing and you're going to, you know, rejoice when he does it, please count properly. Wait till he goes the full circle before saying the number. Like he did like, tw- like they were like one, two, three, four. And it's like, <laughs> my guy has not gone around once yet. What are you <laughs> doing? But um, I did think it was cool that they did the payoff of him giving the fans the big swing that they wanted, which was cool. Um, one last thing. I wanted to speak to what you'd said earlier, Floyd, about Tanahashi being like one of those like Rey Mysterio or like, uh, you know, Ricky Steamboat-esque guys who is just so good as a, as a baby face, he can't get uh, booed. That is incorrect. I will have you know right now, I can, I can guarantee you that if Tanahashi had decided to be the one to play the heel that night, it would have worked. He would have definitely got booed because – Dick Tanahashi is a real, real thing, and he does it better than anybody. He's like Bret Hart in that way. A lot of people don't know Bret Hart for his heel work, but when he turns heel, oh, he gets heat. Tanahashi can get heat. All it takes is a smirk, one of these, (laughs) you know, (laughs) a pat on the head. It doesn't take much. Tanahashi is kind of like, if you ever hear him like cut a promo, he's like, it's me, the once-in-a-century talent. Hiroshi Tanahashi. <laughs> like, he's already kind of borderline dick anyways in real life. Like, it doesn't take much. He, he told Mox it took three years to get to his level. Yes. On, yeah. That was amazing. Yes. That was the line of the weekend. I was <laughs> like, dude. <laughs> they, they were reading the room, and they thought it was appropriate that he play the face. Not that he had to play the face. If he had tried to get booed, it would have worked. And... Mox is so over that Mox could have been like the badass baby face, you know, Stone Cold style beating his ass. It would have worked, uh, but they went the other way and it worked either way. So, yeah, um, over, overall, man, I just thought this, this show just to me was perfect. Um, yeah, yeah, we talked about the crowd. Two things don't fight in the crowd. That's something that happened during the Moxley match. I forgot about that. Uh, about five minutes in the crowd. Uh, you know, people started fighting, and the, everybody started looking towards them. I'm like, Did you don't... see the fight? What What happened? Because we couldn't see. I it didn't. Okay, I saw the people fighting. I don't know what caused the fight. Okay. The security guard went to take the guy out, and he decided he did not want to leave. It wasn't his fault. And fault. Um, in um, I don't know how they work in Tampa, but when it comes to uh, here in Oklahoma at the basketball, at the end of the third quarter, they stopped serving liquor, right? Stop serving beer, all that stuff. Wrestling needs to figure out when their fourth quarter is. And it's funny because at the beginning of the night, everybody's like hugging. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. AEW, <laughs> New Japan. Gulp, 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 gulp. I hate you. Sit down. You're getting on my nerves. I'm going to fight you. And it was just like, I even, you just saw it. It was just like, it was like how it went from this jovial thing to six drinks later. Get out of my way. Why are you so close to me? 
at this fully packed house. I don't know. No, it was like, yeah, they need to decide when their fourth quarter is. Uh, maybe in this case, it would have been like after uh, after the Orange cast, well, after uh, Cesaro and uh, ZSJ. Stop, cut them off because a lot of people imbibed a little too much. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it, but and after the show, it was even funnier because people were just, had this guy just come up and stare me in the face and start talking, and he was talking on his phone, and I thought he was talking to me, and I'm like, do I know you? <laughs> like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, it was the weirdest, craziest experience ever, <laughs> and you know I'm talking about wrestling fans, so you know, saying this is one of the crazy experiences I've been involved with is actually saying something, but yeah, the show I thought was great. I'm, I'm talking about from not even just from what they had, if this was just a really good show where everybody looked out to be performed. And if you think of all the talent that wasn't on the show, that even just blows your mind even more. Uh, you know, we're in Chicago, no CM Punk in Chicago. That's just, that that just would be sacrilege. You have CM Punk on your car. You got to have him in Chicago and he's hurt. And it's just like, you didn't really miss him. <laughs> you didn't miss a lot. It was just the, a great show, but uh, yeah, we had our you know the couple mishaps during the show, but man, Alzheimer, so fun, uh, yeah, and and Mox as the champion, I mean this this is his role. If you you need someone believable to either get the next someone or like build your company around, which he did for a while, this is Mox's role. Every match is going to mean something. He doesn't squash people. He makes everyone look good. Just look at the Willer Yuta matches and how he just made Willer Yuta. He there's he's going to make whoever he wrestles against up until CM Punk gets back if they decide to put the belt back on CM Punk or you know have Mox continue. He is going to be a champion that not only is believable but makes everyone around him stronger. And the Black Bull Combat Club now having the title in the company, I think is really awesome. Yeah, I think it's also awesome too because his title reign got hurt by the pandemic. I mean, he he won the title and then pretty much the world shut down. He wasn't able to really get that, you know, hot bay face title run with this, you know, packed houses kind of cheering him on. He had a lot, you know, he was a champ through that whole empty arena era and really didn't get the the benefit of, you know, Leave you know that hot run of leaving WWE, becoming a, a big star, doing the G one and winning people over in AEW. So now, even though it's interim, he's still kind of getting this you know makeup run in a way of being the champion, being the top A face, and he's going to get to be in an packed houses, packed arena, and such a smart worker. You know, you mentioned the fight when that fight was happening. He you know locked Tanahashi in a hole and just kind of sat there for a few minutes until things kind of settled down. Um, so really kind of paying attention to the crowd, working the room there. Um, and so yeah, Mox is awesome. Uh, I think he was uh, a great choice to go with in this match with Punk being hurt and putting him as the interim champion. He's a draw um, for the building, draw for television, and I think with him and the Black Black Cool Black Pool Combat Club um, kind of being pushed to the forefront, I think we're gonna get a lot of really good matches with him and Claudio and Utah. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, during the presser post show, he talked about how like this was actually better. Now, obviously, they're working, yada, yada, but he seems like to be someone that kind of rings genuine when he's cutting some of these promos, and like he was like, you know, I thought 
that the last time I won the title, it was like, you know, the preeminent thing. He's like, but this feels better this time. So maybe there is something to what you're saying there, Jeremy. I don't know. Um, but when we were in the middle of the show and the show, and we're like, are we on pace for like an all time great like show right now? And um, we were watching the show as me, Rich, Jeremy, and our buddy, Jamie. And um, I like jokingly like, went over to the guys and I was like, bro, a coked up Tony Khan pulled these guys <laughs> all into the back before the show started and gave them like the Paul Heyman speech of all Paul Heyman speeches. <laughs> and Jamie is like, you know what he did? He, he pulled them up and he's like, Kenny Omega is not coming through that door. <laughs> CM Punk. <laughs> Brian Danielson. <laughs> Brian Dan- Hiromu Takahashi is not coming through that door. <laughs> it's on you. <laughs> I was like, bro, he hyped these guys up to some other level because they they went out there and, yeah, it's just one of the best shows ever. Well, yeah, they definitely delivered because he was hugging everybody in the post. Oh, the post, <laughs> the pictures, the one of him and Okada, they like... <laughs> Oh, oh man, Alcala's account. Alcala's a Manchester City fan. I found that out like a lot during the press conference. He told TK he, that like eighteen yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then uh, uh, even if you remember FTR when Cash comes out, like Cash comes out and he is hyped. I mean, he is like, I'm like, dude, this dude drank like three Red Bulls and a bang before he came out here because he's slapping all the fans hand and he, they run up on the sides and say happy. I was like, it was just a different feel. Like everyone knew that they were participating in something historic. Right. And it was just, they, everyone went out to put on the best performance that they could. And it just really, it was just so great. Uh, I was so, you know, so happy to have been there. But even more importantly, just very proud of the two groups working together so well. I'm looking forward to Forbidden Door 2, whether it's in America or it's in Japan or wherever it's at. It's going to be amazing again. I'm, you don't question Tony Khan. When people say the roster's too bloated, this is why the roster's too bloated. You have a whole second team of people on there to put out there and perform well. And you have this you know, this reserve of talent that you can put out there and have them kill it. And then the new Japan roster is you never question their performances. You never question how they're going to be bell to bell because they're just amazing. They're probably the best bell to bell company in the world. So, you know, never, you never doubted that. Well, before we go, we do have some questions since we're running, you know, kind of close on time. Let's try to keep the answers rapid fire. I'd say, or it's, you know, as short as we can, and then uh, we can get Floyd out of here. Yeah. So uh, first from uh, British show, uh, Kevin, who was there live also, he says, uh, favorite performance from Forbidden Door? Um, Orange, Orange Cassidy. Cassidy. Yeah. Oh, we I'll, said the same thing. <laughs> I would say, yeah, Osprey Cassidy. Yeah. Uh, then Rambo and Slam Pig says, who exceeded expectations at Forbidden Door? Did anyone disappoint? Again, I think Orange Cassidy exceeded expectations. The only person that disappointed was the referee in the tag team match that fucked up the uh, the three count and got the, the audience mad at him. Yeah, um, I would say 
along with Cassidy, maybe see Clark Connors, just the, the way that he got over in that four-way match. I think he exceeded. Uh, no really really disappointing. Show to Umino. Yeah, Umino. I was, why did, hey, why did you steal my answer? I was, I was, like, I was like, I'm going to say something different than Josh. I'm going to jump say, in. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. shoot. Old shooter Umino. I mean, like I said, I came out. I came very much a fan. I'm going to follow his career and see where he goes from here. So that was definitely like he overperformed in my eyes. I mean, I didn't even know what I was expecting. But he came out and killed it, and I loved his moment where he got his revenge and had Chris Jericho in the Boston Crab long-term storytelling. I love it. He also asked if Kenny Omega could come back tomorrow and wrestle anyone on the NJPW roster, who would you want first? Okada 1A, Osprey 1B. Yeah, retweet on that. Uh, also, uh, if Ibushi's out there, I don't know. <laughs> so my answer's a little different. I'm going to say Shingo Takagi. Oh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Give me that. <laughs> I, I think as a, as a kind of a low-key ELP, just because ELP's been ripping off all his moves for like the last two years, got to settle that. It's weird no one said Jay White. <laughs> uh, this next question, given that the gate and pay-per-view buy rate seem to have met or exceeded expectations, it seems likely that there will be a sequel either in the U.S. or Japan. What lesson should be taken from this inaugural event? Even though I think they hit their marks, the biggest lesson for me that I feel like they need to take, promote, 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 promotion, cohesiveness, work together, talk together, promote, promote the fucking show. <laughs> uh, get everybody healthy. That's the thing they need to learn. <laughs> that too. That's a huge one. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely just, I think, yeah, promotion is the key. Um, communication, I mean, also they were communicating, but it seemed like there was maybe a lack of communication sometimes on what was happening, who could be available when. And I would definitely say, I, I see, I know Toy Con likes traditions and kind of doing things at the same time. I'm not sure if um, in between Double or Nothing and Dominion is the best time, just the way both companies book. So I don't know if there's a, a better timing for it, but I don't know. Just kind of working some things out a little bit more ahead of time. They like to do holiday weekends, and I don't know if it would run into something the New Japan doing, but, you know, they don't really do anything July 4th weekend. So maybe push it back a little bit so you have a few. You would have had like a week or two more to really build to the show. Yeah. And then Rambo's last question is, given the ability to work for a wide variety of opponents, of various styles in front of large and hot crowds in a backstage environment full of industry veterans, wouldn't AW be an ideal excursion destination for the Young Lions? Shota seemed to benefit this weekend. Yes. Yeah, definitely. We A- kind of, absolutely. Yeah, we talked about that when we talked about Shooter. Uh, Sir Sam says, who that missed out from NJPW would you like to see on the card next time? There's a lot of answers you could give, but for me, Kota Ibushi. Gorilla's of Destiny. Tetsuya Naito. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Ishii. <laughs> Ishii. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, MJDS PR. Who had the better evening, New Japan or AEW? I, I didn't. Push. I, I, yeah, I would say push. I felt like it was equal. Yeah, I'm kind of talking about that at the beginning, too. Yeah, I felt like. And, and I'm not even saying that in a fanboy way. Like it could have easily swayed one way or the other. It just felt like they it, they felt like equals on that night, which is crazy. Yeah. 
He also asks, what's the ceiling for Forbidden Door? Can it, can it do Wrestle Kingdom numbers? So I'm not sure what he means by Wrestle Kingdom numbers, like, like by attendance or uh, pay-per-view. Different by- metrics. It's hard to kind of gauge there. But do I think they could go to uh, Japan and do one of these in the Tokyo Dome if, if they promoted and built it right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, like I yeah, I, what you said, you didn't really, what, what are we gauging? But yeah, I think they could do a Tokyo Dome with it. Amazing. It would like, be awesome. Then last uh, Forbidden Door question here from Les Commission 7252. Because I believe the Forbidden Door pay-per-view lived up to its expectations despite the injuries that changed half of the match card. With New Japan's two biggest shows with ROH in 2019 at MSG and with AEW in the United Center at Chicago, which show did you guys mostly enjoy? And with the show you didn't pick, what do you think they could have done better? Um, I mean, I guess to make it simple, I think this is the better show. Um, although on paper, that the the ROH um, show is more attractive and has more key highlight matches. This is the better overall show just from pure entertainment and performance. I I mean, of course, I definitely enjoyed this show more. Uh, what the other show could have done better is actually book the elite. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, or, or, or like done better on the ROH side of things and communicated with New Japan and what they were fucking doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Enzo. yeah, yeah, keep keep yeah, keep Enzo far away. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, I mean, as the overall show, I liked uh, Forbidden Door better, but but um, MSG will hold a special place for me just because we were there live. It's MSG. We saw an Okada, you know, IWGP title match. Um, JY, we saw Naito and Ibushi and IC match Saber Tanahashi like. There's so many cool stuff that I saw live, so that show always holds a special place in my heart, but this was a better show. Like the guy said, yeah, just the Ring of Honor part was what really held down the MSG show in 2019. So had the Ring of Honor stuff had been better, um, then definitely I think that show would have increased and might have been a better competition for this show. So that's going to wrap up our Forbidden Door conversation. Floyd, thanks for joining us in uh, powering through my power issues um, like we were saying in the the lost intro, you know, your podcast, All Things Elite, um, came at the birth of AEW with the young boy just being so persistent, saying, "Hey, we we need an AEW podcast. We need an AEW. The network needs an AEW podcast." When they had just started, um, and we uh, heard you on with one of our buddies on a different podcast, and thought you were great. Met you in Chicago all in weekend, and we've become good friends since then. And it's been great to see your show pick up the fan base that you've kind of developed there and what you and Austin are doing right now. So thanks for having it. Thanks for coming on the show with us and uh, give the listeners your plugs and where they can find you online. Okay. On Twitter, you can follow me at AT Elite Pod. Uh, that is me and Austin. Uh, you can follow me at Floyd Johnson Jr. My name is FTR Express if you want. And then uh, at Austin. Uh, Sumowitz. <laughs> it's so funny. I have to look up my how to spell my co-host's name. It's at A-U-S-T-I-N-S-Z-U-M-O-W-I-C-Z. Because, you know, that's a normal last name. Uh, no, <laughs> no, but uh, uh, we appreciate everybody that listens. Uh, we just love AEW so much. Uh, we're generally at, you know, all the uh, live and all pay-per-views. And you um, later this week we'll put out an episode. You'll hear Austin's uh, point of view. But for 
for this, this is you're going to hear my point of view on keeping it strong style. I I've loved this show since before I knew who you were. So yeah, that is uh, you keep doing what you're doing, and I will keep sending people your way. Nice. All right, it was great having uh, Floyd with us to talk about Forbidden Door. Now we're going to uh, sprint through the uh, few stuff here that we have to talk about. So we do have some New Japan road shows coming up. They took a pause in the tour. Not watching them. (laughs) Just letting you know. Well, there's some interesting stuff, uh, some names on this card. uh, But, yeah, they're picking back up the tour. I'll run through these cards real quick. So on July 3rd, we got Makabe and Hanuma against Oiwa and Nakashima. Tenzan Fujita, Wato versus Despi, Suzuki, and Kanamaru. Jado Taguchi versus Bushi and Hiromu. Alex Coughlin, Clark Connors, and the DKC taking on Sonata Shingo and Tetsuya Naito. Goto, Yano, Yo, and Yoshihashi taking on the House of Torture. And then Okada and Ishii against Doki and Taichi in the semi-main. And in the main event, Alex Zane is back teaming with Tanahashi and Kushida. His first match back in New Japan uh, taking on the Bullet Club team of Gato, Kenta, and Taiji Ishimori. Then on July, who's first, who's first match back, Alexander Kushida? <laughs> well, well, Kushida's first New Japan match back. No, I know, but like, it's also Alexander's first, well, first New Japan match since he's come back. Yeah, since he was wrestling like what a month ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, then uh, July fourth, we got Suzuki versus Vegeta, Kanemaru versus Nakashima, Tenzan and Oiwa against Makabe and Hanma. Alex Coughlin, Clark Carson, and DKC against Doki, Despi, and Taichi. Goto Yano, Yo Yoshiashi versus House of Torture. Wato Deguchi teaming up with Okada and Ishii and Alex Zane to take on Bushi, Hiromu Sanada, Shingo, and Naito. And the main event will be Tanahashi and Kushida versus Kenta and Taiji Ishimori. And then oh, wow. on- so, seeing Tanahashi and Kenta square off again. Yeah, I'm not sure Kenta really wants that smoke. <laughs> He didn't learn his lesson. Yeah. Um, then the last show of this tour, July 5th, we got Vegeta and Oiwa against Wato Noguchi, Tenzan and Nakashima against Makabe and Hanma, Coughlin, Connors, and the DKC against Okada, Ishii, and Alex Zane, Kanahashi, Jado, and Kushida versus Gato, Kenta, and Ishimori. Then we got a 10-man tag with Doki, Despi, Suzuki, Taichi, and Kanamaru against Bushi, Hiromu, Sonata, Shingo, and Naito. Then we have a dog cage singles match with Toriano and Dick Togo. And then the main event will be the never open weight six man tag team titles on the line. House of Torture, Evil, Show, and Nudro will defend against Hiroki Goto, Yo, and Yoshihashi. Yeah, I saw that they were like teasing a build to a, another dog cage match. And I'm, I'm just like, why? Yeah, like Yano's like, all right, what goofy match am I doing now? And they're like, you're not KOPW. You're not KOPW champion. Yeah, but I mean, come on. I, I can do one of these, right? <laughs> also, how funny is it that he attended the Forbidden Door and, and just sat ringside the entire time and did nothing? Yeah, man, sat in the crowd, a spectator. <laughs> that's so lame. That's hilarious. So, yeah, so that's New Japan Road. That will conclude on the 5th. We'll be back next week to review all stuff that happened. Chaos there. is not winning these never open weight six man tag team champions. You know why? Why? Cause I got yo, yo. <laughs> uh, but I, I am excited to see Coglin um, in Japan first time since 2019. DKC's first time in Japan, and then Connor's back in Japan as well after working Super Juniors. So very cool to get these LA Dojo guys finally back in Japan. Carl Fredericks is not walking through that door. 
Oh, man. Uh, speaking of Frederick, let's go back in the archives listen to our interview with him during the pandemic. Um, so let's move on to uh, New Japan Strong. So we had the con- conclusion of the Collision Tour from Philadelphia this past Saturday. Uh, show what we had uh, David Finley defeating Danny Limelight there, kind of following up on some history between those guys. Then we had Minoru Suzuki defeating Tony Deppin. And then the main event, the match that we've all been waiting for, the, the big feud and rivalry on Strong. We had the Strong Openweight title match with a new champ, Mr. No Days Off. Fred Rosser finally does it. He finally beats Filthy Tom Lawler to become the new Strong Openweight champion, ending Filthy Tom's over, what, 300-day reign? Almost 400 397 recognized days, wow. according to Wikipedia. Yeah, almost 400 days as strong champion, the first and only, finally dropping to Phil, or to uh, Fred Rosser after all that Fred Rosser's been through, the head shaving, the attacks from Team Filthy, the failed uh, attempts to beat Filthy Tom, finally got the job done here in Philadelphia. Yeah, the undercard matches were good. Um, you know, we just kind of breezed through them. But, you know, if you didn't see this episode, especially Suzuki Deppin's worth checking out. But, uh, you know, m- the match everyone wanted to see is the big main event. You know, Rosser versus Lawler 3. Two things that New Japan did in the lead-up to this that, that are both available on New Japan World, which I highly recommend. There's the Fred Rosser, Mr. No Days Off mini-doc. It's two episodes. They're about... They're pretty short. They're like 12 to 15 minutes each, so or maybe even less than that. Um, and it kind of just gives you some insight to Fred Rosser, his background, his motivations, his family life, and also really delves into the depths of this feud and the lead-up to his title shot. So kind of gives you a lot of like insight to his motivation as a character, and then on the flip side, they posted a video for Tom Lawler's nine title defenses leading up to this, all in sequential order. So it's like a very long video, but if you hadn't seen all those, they're available in just one video. You can watch sequentially every single title defense that Tom Lawler has uh, you know, succeeded through. And he's had some of the best matches on New Japan Strong. And I mean, almost again, almost 400 days. I, I can't imagine that anyone else who wins this title in the next however long this title exists is ever going to hold it as long or defend as many times successfully. I mean, this seems like a mark that's going to be very difficult for anybody to surpass regardless of who wins it after Fred Rosser. Uh, But getting to the match itself, the match was really, really, really great. Uh, You know, I don't know if I necessarily am as high on the Rosser-Tom Lawler matches, myself as everyone else's, but I, I do recognize how great they are. And Fred was just so heated up. The crowd was completely, you know, uh, behind him. And Tom Lawler just kept cutting him off, cutting him off, and it's just like a cat-and-mouse game. But what really picked up the pace and, and the tone of the match was uh, in the middle of the match, there was a point where... Lawler's been employing all these outside dastardly tactics and trying to wear down Fred Rosser by, you know, using the ground, using the barricades, all that. 
And at one point, he puts Fred Rosser in a rear naked choke. And, like, basically, like, chokes him out. And they go up the ramp. And Tom Lawler takes Fred Rosser. He's dragging him in the choke. And he drags him to the back. And you don't see what's happening, but you hear loud noises. You hear, like, a crash of, a, of like, a, uh, a folding chair. And then the next thing you know, like, Tom Lawler comes back. He's taking the ref. He's going in the ring. He tells him to start the count, and they start the count. And then suddenly, like, the the bloodiest <laughs> friend roster you've ever seen. Like, if you thought the Mox, uh, you know, blood was bad on Sunday night, this was even worse. Like, Fred Rosser is crawling down to the ring. He's bleeding everywhere. Suddenly, Team Filthy comes out, and they're going to, like, barricade him from getting in the ring. So, like, he's going to get counted out. All the L.A. Dojo guys come down. They beat up Team Filthy, take them to the back. But now it falls on on, on uh, Fred Rosser to get back into the ring. And right at 19, just before 20, he gets in the ring. They go back and forth. They have an epic, epic contest. And no matter what Tom Lawler throws at Fred Rosser, he keeps cu- coming through it. He gets out of every submission hold. He kicks out of every major move that he hits him with. And he just keeps coming forward it just keeps bleeding and um and then finally towards the tail end he fires up he starts getting the comeback and he ultimately is able to put uh tom waller away with a stm version of a crossface chicken wing where he's got the the leg trapped and he has him in the crossface and right in the middle of the ring tom waller has nowhere to go filthy taps out and we were crowned a new champion just an epic 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 contest 24 minutes 17 seconds uh the only thing i would say that i didn't like about the match i didn't think the crowd here in philadelphia at the tail end was as hot for the finish as i would have imagined them to have been they seemed very hot in the early goings and as the match continued on they i don't know if they were tired by this point in the taping or what but like I remember in Carson when they had the second match and that Carson crowd was like living and breathing with filthy. And for whatever reason, this Philadelphia crowd just didn't seem to have that same enthusiasm. Yeah. This was a weird Philadelphia crowd. I've noticed for the whole set of the collision shows, like, yeah, they had moments where they were up, but I felt like they were very mild compared to the first time they were in Philly when you had the um, Dickinson, I think Dickinson Suzuki was on that card. Um, or was, it might have been the um, Mox and Kingston against Suzuki and Archer. I can't remember, but the first time they were in Philly, it was very strong. So, yeah, it was weird that they were not as hype, especially toward the, the, the end part um, of this match. But I thought the match was great. I mean, this was a, a long-time rivalry, a great story that has been told throughout Strong. They did a great job establishing Philly Tom as this dominant champion and then the great storytelling with Rosser and Filthy Tom and everything he's been through and yeah they had the spot in the match where like he mentioned he's trying to get back in the ring and then all Team Filthy's like barricading him to try and get him to count out which I don't know how that's legal but anyway you had um, the strong Huntai guys coming Rocky and all those guys coming out and fighting off Team Filthy and he was able to get back in at, at you know 19 and he has really fighting from underneath and you did, a, you did a great recap of the match, and, you know, his parents were there, and, you know, I think it was his mom or grandma who was, like, yelling during the middle of the match. and That's his mom. Yeah, his mom, and, uh, yeah, it's, everything about this match was just so awesome, and the crossway. Oh. Hmm? 
No, go ahead. I just remembered something about the something else about the match I didn't like. Oh, you're gonna talk about uh, Filthy Tom like sucking the Bro, blood out of his disgusting head. in this match. Like he he took the blood and wiped it all over his body, and that's one thing. And then at another point, like he tried to like suck the blood out of the like wound of Tom Lawler or out of uh, Fred Rosser's head. And like, there's this very uh, famous match from the 50s, I think, or maybe it's the 60s, where Freddie Blassie, I think he uh, sucked the blood out of the head of, like, Destroyer or Ricky Dozan or someone and then spit it in their face. And, like, the legend says that, like, people literally died, had hard watching it on TV, like, died <laughs> from the excitement of it and the shock and horror. And for a second there, I thought that's what he was trying to do. But it's like he, like, drank, like, or, like, he, like, either did or mimed that he was... Either way, it's disgusting. It's just so fucking yeah, gross. Definitely. He was really gross in this match. Yeah, he lived up to the filthy uh, nickname, definitely, in this match. And, yeah, after the match, Rosser was able to cut a post-match promo and, you know, be like, you guys remember the Nexus? You remember primetime players? You remember me with Bob Backlund? He's like, you know, now, like, the best version of myself pretty much and you know aw told me no twice and my dad you know keeps saying you know why why aren't you wrestling in the big time and, you know aw WWE, and uh you know it's really sinking in his moment here in new japan and how much he wanted to be a strong openweight champion how much he loves new japan and loves his family for supporting him and yeah it was just a great you know happy ending great story for uh fred rosser a guy who i think we kind of you know laughed it off of him you know, right. when we he did. when he first was announced as coming in New Japan, we're like, Darren Young, you know, yeah, the primetime player is going to, you know, come in New Japan. Like, really? But that guy has, uh, you know, definitely over over um, performed and lived up to standards. I didn't know he could and became a really great performer, a great part of New Japan Strong. And a great babe face, and now I'm invested and looking forward to seeing what his title run is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, this feud has been one of the absolute best feuds in all of New Japan. Um, and the only reason that it doesn't get the recognition is because it's occurring primarily on Strong, where uh, there's a lot less viewership. But, I mean... Go watch the video packages. Go watch the matches. I mean, I feel like they should put that together as just like one thing that you could watch because I mean, it would really be awesome. But all of their matches, not just the singles matches, but all the multi-man matches, every every step of the way in the build, this is easily this should in a perfect world when when award season comes, this should win feud of the year. There's no other candidate that's even close to it. Like not even in the same stratosphere. It's one of the absolute best feuds in all of wrestling. But, you know, who knows if it's going to get that kind of support just based on its uh, visibility. But, again, great match, very inspiring. Awesome to see a guy like, uh, you know, Fred Rosser kind of just, like, change his game, change his, like, entire trajectory of his career and, like, kind of reclaim his, uh, you know, his legacy. And... Great match. Yeah. yeah. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. And we had a question here from Les Commission 7252. It says, after the loss to Fred Rosser, is it best for Tom Lawler to stay in Japan for a while after the G1? It would be awesome to see him have a match against Shingo, whether it's at the Tokyo Dome or a random KOPW match. 
Uh, you know, I, I don't know necessarily that uh, ultimately that's what's going to happen as far as like him staying there long term because, you know, I I kind of see this. I don't know what his contract status is with New Japan, but I, I got to assume that uh, this is some sort of de facto like tryout. I know that they're high on him and they like him a lot. The New Japan management is. Um, but, you know, the G1 is kind of where you figure out that's where the rubber meets the road. And so, I mean, who knows? Maybe he will return to Japan after this G1, but I think it really depends on how he's received, how he performs over there. I wish him the best of luck, and I hope he has an incredible performance. But uh, at the same time, it's like he also has deals here in the States with, like, just different things that he's got. He's got his hand in a lot of different pots, you know? Yeah. I would love to see Tom, yeah, be in Japan, but can you imagine, yeah, G1 is it's a test. If he doesn't do well in G1, then they're probably going to have questions on whether or not they're going to keep using him. Uh, right. But based off what we've seen on Strong and his independent work, I have no doubt that he'll do great in the G1, and I think he's a guy that we are going to see in Japan more, especially with, you know, at some point there is going to be a strong tour or taping in Japan. So I think helping them get over in Japan um, will definitely help move that along. So uh, coming up next Saturday, we have a special uh, Empire Rising episode of Strong where uh, it's going to be all United Empire in action against various competitors. So the main event of the show will be Will Ospreay against Homicide. Then uh, Jeff Cobb will be taking on Willie Mack. And then the great Ocon, Aaron Hanare, and Kyle Fletcher and Mark Davis will be taking on Jonah, Shane Hayes, Mikey Nichols, and Bad Dude Tito. So United Empire versus TMDK. That should be a, a pretty fun episode. Yeah, uh, pretty cool stuff going on there. Can't wait to see it. Then we have the high alert tapings coming up July 24th in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll have the finals of the strong openweight tag team championship tournament. Hiromu Takahashi will be facing Clark Connors. Mascot Arado will be taking on TJP. And Hikaleo will be taking on Big Demo. So tickets are on sale for that North Carolina show. And then kind of following up with that in the news, New Japan has announced Music City Mayhem announced for StarCast 5 weekend, which will be Saturday, July 30th in Nashville, Tennessee at the Nashville Fairgrounds. And the show will air live on Fight TV. A couple other things. I saw uh, comments in the media that uh, Obari made where he mentioned that they want to do Forbidden Door in Japan as well. So, you know, it kind of sounds like they might hypothetically continue this trend um, in Japan. So that if that happens, that would be pretty awesome. Um, the free match of the week this week was Tanahashi versus Okada from G129. I believe that's the G1 that we attended in Dallas the opening night. Yes. Yeah, so that's available for free. There's also a bunch of free Glate matches. I don't have the... Um, participants but there were several late matches oh there's the one with shingo and shima that occurred recently where they tagged together and then i think there's one with uh goto if i'm if i'm correct but um yeah there's definitely some excursion late matches that just popped up on new japan world this week so those are available for free even if you're not a uh 
subscriber to the subscribe, you know, to service. Yeah. There's a few questions here, and then we'll jump to uh, recommended match of the week. Uh, so PCA91 says, I have seen other wrestling companies in Japan, DDT and TJPW are letting fans cheer again, bring streamers and banners. So when do you think NJPW will allow fans to cheer again? I really don't know. You know, they this is a very cautious company, and they've always kind of been that way, regardless of whether it comes to something with health safety or otherwise, they just oftentimes are very slow at change and dragging their feet. So hopefully soon. I don't know. I, that's the best answer I can say. Uh, apparently there's like, it's funny because we live in Florida. Nothing really here has changed much in, in recent months since like all the mandates got lifted. But like this past weekend we were going to, before the show, we were going to go eat. And I went to like two different restaurants. They were both closed because COVID sur- was surging. And I'm like, COVID is surging. <laughs> I don't even know about it. So who knows? Yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'm definitely, hopefully it's soon. And PCN says that, uh, he says, I'm actually going to both a DDT and Tokyo Yoshi show next month where the fans will be allowed to cheer with masks on for the first time since the pandemic started. I'm surprised NJPW hasn't announced in regards to a relaxing of the rules when it comes to cheering, especially with the G1 coming up. I know I'm getting nervous about G1. I feel like, yeah. I feel like the cheering is going to make it or break it for some people. For me, it will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Less Commission 7252 says, who would you guys say is the top baby face heel as of right now? Basically a heel that plays his part, but has that certain spark and chemistry with the fans that makes him beloved. For example, Minoru Suzuki. Um. Maybe maybe Tai Chi, maybe Tai Chi, yeah. Tai Chi Zach, Despi. Tai Chi, Tai Chi or Zach or Desperado, those are the guys. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like, but those guys are all t- tweeners, you know. Right. In fact, that's what I think a top babyface heel actually is. It's just a tweener. Like, I don't think you can be a babyface heel. Yeah. So uh, last question here from Hawaiian Punch TV. Thoughts on Bam Rodriguez's dominating performance over SSR. Bam was able to dominate and finish SSR with other pound-for-pound greats in Roman Gonzalez and Juan Francisco Estrada couldn't. Didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> You're, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty low in the, the weight classes there, don't you think? <laughs> oh, man. All right, what well, are they like? Um, like super flyweights? <laughs> I've never heard of any of these dudes, so I have no idea. It's Jesse Jesse uh, Rodriguez. I think he's a super flyweight. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah, I'm seeing it here. Yeah, he destroyed this guy in the second of the year nominee. Okay, I gotta check that out. I didn't see it. Uh, you know. It's always going to be like this wrestling first, MMA second, boxing is like third tier for me. And I'm more so, you know, following like the higher weights and the bigger names. So some of that super flyweight stuff I miss, you know, especially when it's like foreign guys and if it's overseas. I don't know if this is overseas or not, but it sounds like it might have been. Yeah. So let's end here with recommended match of the week. So last week for excursion match of the week, I recommended. 
the Will Ospreay versus Nick Wayne match from GCW. I never liked you. Okay, yeah. So this this is an interesting match because I watched it. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really awesome. But I am conflicted here because I heard so many good things about this. Like, so many. Uh, I think right now, as of this morning, like, it's got a 9.12 on cage match. Put that into perspective. The the Orange Cassidy-Will Ospreay match has a 9.13. So they're, like, off just by, like, less than a, you know, whatever. So that would lead you to think that this has got to be, like, one of the top 20 matches that's occurred this year anywhere in the world, basically, and, like, an easy excursion match of the year contender, and, like, you'd have to be a fool to leave it off of your ballot. I got to tell you guys, I'm not totally convinced that this is one of those recommendations, personally. Um, I thought the match was great. I thought it was fun. I thought it was very fast-paced. I thought that the crowd had great energy. And I think the story is awesome because you've got Nick Wayne, who is this 17, 16-year-old kid who is this prodigy, and his dream opponent is Will Ospreay, who's a guy that very much resembles him in a lot of different ways when he was that age, you know, at that point in his career. And they go out there and they, they had a great match. But, and, and, and you know, I think long-term, I think Nick Wayne is a very special guy, and it, provided there's no long-term like health complications or anything like that from like injuries, it's probably going to be a big name in this sport. And this match, I think will be one of those first early matches that people point back to that show what, you know, he was great back then. And he, you know, really put on a fantastic performance with Will Ospreay. But we cover a lot of Will Ospreay excursion matches on this podcast. And I've seen a lot of his matches this year and the tail end of last year and stuff he was doing over over in Europe at the in the middle of the year last year and like this match truly does not compare to what he did with like Brian Cage this year or Amazing Red at the end of last year Michael Oku Michael Oku or um, Ricky Knight Jr. Ricky Knight Jr. It's just not in the same caliber of league as those matches and the reason why is because it's kind of a basic match they do do a lot of high-flying stuff, but it's very basic wrestling school-type high-flying things like this. It, I don't know. I was kind of confused because I heard so many people talk about how innovative Nick Wayne was. And to me, Nick Wayne wasn't at all innovative. Nick Wayne was very impressive for his age. You don't imagine seeing a 16-year-old going out there and doing you know, all these Hurricane Ranas and Frankensteiners and uh, Destroyers. But he didn't do anything that I haven't seen any number of guys do on a regular Wednesday night on Dynamite. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, dude. I, I absolutely have the same feeling. 100% agree with you on everything that okay, you're saying. Okay, because you're the only other person I've talked to that feels this way. Yeah, because, again, like I heard all the high people were like four and a half, four percent, five, five stars, match of the year. I don't think so. This I'm match there, is incredible. Man. And, you know, it's Will Ospreay. And, you know, I saw Nick Wayne versus Swerve, which was also another another great match for Nick Wayne. And so, oh, wow, well, it's Ospreay. And, you know, it was, a, it was a dream match for Nick Wayne. He desperately wanted this match. So, you know, maybe they went out there and had this incredible matchup. And, like you said, it was a great matchup. 
If you're a fan of flips, there were a ton of flips, a lot of cool moves, a lot of cool reversals. Um, your you know dramatic you know flip spot into face staring. Um, like it, it was a, a very fun, yeah. great matchup. The GCW crowd was very uh, rabid. They were right up against the ring and you know pounding on the canvas and had a ton of great energy. But at the end of the day, when you compare this match to the Orange Cassidy match or like all the matches you listed, like it's not in the same level. I mean, I'm like maybe four, four and a quarter. I, I'm probably four to four and a quarter on it. And I think this year we've had so many great excursion matches. It's probably not going to make the cut. Yeah. I mean, like, just, just I, from Osprey's alone, Osprey's excursion matches, like it's not going to make the cut. It, yeah. It's not as good as some of the matches he's had. It's not as good as say like Doki and Taichi. Like, you know, if we're, if we're just going for matches that pull on the heartstrings, that match was way more emotional, you know? Uh, and if we're talking about flips and innovative stuff, it doesn't come close to velocities and, and uh, Aussie open. open, Yeah, you know, um, for spectacle, it's not as good as Desperado and Doki versus Junak or uh, Jun Kasai and uh, uh, Tomoaki Hama. So, you know, I'm, I was a little lost here when I heard these rave reviews. I think it's that a lot of people want to be ahead. Yeah. On Nick Wayne. Yeah. And, they don't want to tell the truth. And the truth is he's fantastic, but he's kind of, he is kind of green. And, and he's 16. He should be green. And he's 16 <laughs> and he should be green. Yeah. This match was definitely a high recommend. It's very, very, very fun. And I think that he's going to be something special, but people acting like this is a match that you're contender. They FOH. <laughs> 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 it, it, it's not, it, it's truly not. It's very good though. But like, you know, it's it's just not a match of the year contender, but it it was an awesome match, and it's it's an easy watch. It's only like what sixteen twenty minutes, so if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. Yeah, and then for the recommended match of the week, you picked the WCW Super Brawl ninety one matchup between Ric Flair and Tatsumi Fujinami, and I just think it was such a cool pick too because you you had Jr. on commentary here. Yeah, for Forbidden Door weekend, kind of, and then you had Tony Schiavone backstage, you know, announcer. So, seems some similar parallels, and you know, mentioning of IWGP and doing this kind of cross to Japan show. It's, uh, it's definitely a cool pick for uh, Forbidden Door weekend, and you know, it's definitely. It, before you go into it, I, I did rewatch this, and I thought it was funny when they like tried to interview. They interviewed uh, Masa Saito, and they're like, "What? What's the deal? Like, what? What's what's Fujinami feeling?" And he's like. We take back what's ours. <laughs> it's it's like, like, what? take, yeah, taking it back to Japan. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> totally, oh, well, that's very clear. They're going to take the title back to Japan. Back to the <laughs> ring. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, this was a very interesting matchup. Definitely very different than, like, an Osprey-Nick Wayne really match. Um, but it just showed, like, sometimes you forget just how good of a wrestler Ric Flair is because... I don't know, recency bias, you think of some of his later matches sometimes, and you know, there was some good, like, grappling with him and Fujinami um, in, in this matchup. Um, a lot of great strikes. Um, of course, it's a, a flare match, so he blades, and he's, um, the blood's going in, in the bleach blonde hair. Um, you know, definitely good back and forth. One complaint I have about the match, it just seemed like the crowd wasn't super into this match. 
the crowd wasn't. They didn't know. They didn't really know Fujinami. They didn't do a good job promoting it. And I forget where this show happened, but the sh- the, the crowd wasn't great. Yeah, the crowd was dead. And and, uh, and it's 1991 WCW. They're not exactly lighting the world on fire, anyways. Yeah, and of course, you know, big USA chance <laughs> at one yeah. point in the match. Uh, Racist. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's like we don't know what's happening. We're just gonna cheer for the American. <laughs> and to put it in perspective, this is Flair's last appearance for pay per view with WCW before he jumped ship. The the because they mentioned during the main event that the next pay per view is Great American Bash '91, and that's one of the all time worst wrestling shows in the history of professional wrestling. With the main event being Barry Windham versus Lex Luger in a in one of the worst steel cage matches of all time to crown. A new champion because Flair didn't show up to the show because you know he had differences with with creative and left. So this is like the last time you're going to see Flair in WCW until what 1993. Yeah, and they had uh, two refs out there. So uh, Tiger Hattori was uh, refing in the ring. I forget which referee was uh, outside with the WCW ref, and that was kind of a, a big part in the match. Oh, oh, this is St. Pete. <laughs> Yeah, it's right. It's yes yeah, in St. Pete. Yeah, <laughs> they did mention that on commentary. Um, and yeah, and that was a big part with having the two refs because towards the end, Flair like bumped uh, Fujinami into Tiger, and then the other ref was came in and he like schoolboy and pulling the tights, and then the WCW ref was the one that made the the cover, even though Tiger was supposed to be the one that was like the main official in the ring, while right. the WCW ref was supposed to be like. Kind of just outside the ring, making sure everything was good. Yeah, um, this I definitely liked that we got to see Flair actually wrestle because you didn't get to see even too much of that in a lot of the majority of his career. So that's kind of cool. But it, it's a, it's him and Fujinami. Though I think the match is good, they definitely had like a a clash of styles. You yeah, know, I didn't feel like they like when you compare it to his All Japan work players that is and his work with like jumbo and uh tenrun got it he just meshed much better with those guys who had that all japan style which was more rooted in the nwa style of things him and fujinami never quite clicked but it's still very good i think the match is a, has always gotten a bad rap it's a little underrated but uh at the same time it's it's not like it's a classic i'm you know, I didn't recommend this because I think like, oh, everyone should go their way. I think it was more fitting for Forbidden Door, but also because historically it's a good one to see. Like if you've never seen it, I mean, you know, it's the NWA, WCW, and IWGP champions in the ring together. Yeah, definitely a historical moment, a kind of a great matchup to watch during Forbidden Door weekend. Obviously to today's standards, not, you know, knocking your socks off or anything, but very historical match. I'd still go around four, maybe a little less, but yeah. around that. Yeah. So now for this week's pick. So I have the recommended match this week, and we're going to go to Dominion 2014 for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team titles, the Young Bucks against the Time Splitters. Now, are you sure you've never recommended this match to me before? <laughs> I th- I was I was looking to make sure because I wanted to pick a Kushida match. I, I looked on the spreadsheet on the site. I did not see that match on that on the list that was put together. I'm gonna look real quick just to make sure. So 
we got one Red Dragon, Young Bucks, Seidel, and Ricochet versus Rapongi Vice. And then the other one is Bucks versus Sonata and Evil. And then that's it. Wow. Okay. You know, we've only got two Young Bucks recommended matches. I think we've like always tried to just like not recommend to like overload everything with Young Bucks matches, but we've only ever done like two Young Bucks matches in in in, in the whole time we've been recommending <laughs> stuff, which is kind of funny. Yeah. So yeah, that's my right. match. Bucks first time splitters. Cool. Look forward to rewatching that. And then uh my excursion match of the week. We are going to the land of Cyber Fight Festival 2022. The main event, Satoshi Kojima versus Goshi Ozaki for the Global Honor Championship heavyweight title. Let's go. Ichazo Bakayaro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've got a feeling, I've, I've heard some good things, but I feel, I, I have a feeling that this is the anti-Wayne Osprey where it's going <laughs> to... It's gonna exceed the, what I've heard about it. I just have a feeling. Yeah. It's time to go to work. So, well, that's going to wrap things up for us here this week on the show. Next week, we'll be back to review the conclusion of the New Japan Road Tour and cover all this news in the world of New Japan pro wrestling. So, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuitbucks.com slash donate and clicking the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. Make sure to connect with us on social media, on Twitter. The show is at KI Strong Style. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. Follow the network at Social Suplex. On Facebook, we're Facebook.com slash Social Suplex. On Instagram, we are at Social Suplex. On Reddit, I'm the pro black guy. you just keeping a strong style. You can also email me, Jeremy at SocialSuplex.com. Check out our Discord server. Link is in the description of the show. And also check out all the other shows here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Nation Radio hosted by Rich Lada and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite hosted by Floyd and Austin. And the AEW Match Guy podcast hosted by Sir Sam. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping a Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Itchy bomb. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. <laughs>